This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's a whole new day. Yay! It's Thursday, though. As you're driving to work or just uh, starting the new day, let's make it a great one. It doesn't have to be bad just because it's uh, you're tired, you're sluggish. I woke up, interestingly, with my neck in major pain, and I think my face was facing backwards. Ouch! It's horrible. I have this dream that somebody's like twisting my head around, like a, a little girl's trying to pull my head off of her Barbie. And then I woke up with neck pain. Does it stem from your childhood having yes. sisters? I had three sisters that tortured me with Barbies. And now every time my neck hurts, I'm having dreams of Barbies. Hey, folks, it's fudge day. Mm. It's also fresh, fresh veggies day. Thank you, Ben, for singing. That was fantastic. A little German yodel in there. practicing for a while. <laughs> uh, fresh Veggies Day, which gives you a choice. You can go for Fudge Day or you can go for Fresh Veggies Day. We always like to offer you a balanced meal here on the Matt Townsend Show. It's also Dump the Pump Day. And there's a reason it's Dump the Pump Day because our first guest today will um, – she's – I don't know what we call it. I guess she is exposing an oil uh, – what do we want to call this? A is she a whistleblower? She's a whistleblower, but apparently, apparently, the oil industry and oil companies have been covering up for about the last fifty years their knowledge about how uh, how the oil industry is envi- or how the yeah how gas and CO two emissions are impacting the environment for fifty years, and she's here to tell us what's going on. They have found articles, research done at Stanford University way back in the day that uh, basically reveals that the oil industry has been covering up, much like the cigarette tobacco industry, we're covering up uh, their negative um, research. So too has the oil industry since 1968. By the way, not to brag, a year before I was born. I don't know if I was bragging. So we're going to be talking about that. That's why it is dump the pump day. We're going to get healthy uh, environmentally and talk about this cover-up and find out about some of the latest research on that from the president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law. Interesting. Interesting stuff. We'll get to that. Also, of course, a little uh, Trump date. And um, I mean, it's almost like you can't have a day without talking Trump and Clinton. So we'll, we'll get into a little bit of politics. Uh, plus, just lots of fun stories. Of course, we like to use video on the radio show. We are the most visually um, impactful radio show on the radio. Impactful. I like that. Yeah. We bring visual impact. It applies a lot when, I don't know if we... Meteors, when meteors are yeah. coming. Do we really deliver that much video? Yeah. I really enjoy it. We, we, I, we, yeah. Im- we imply, but... No, do you not? You obviously don't listen to the show. We don't... It's hard to prove that we're actually showing video, though. Well, no. If we say it, we mean it. It's okay. Right I there. just... Video. Boink. Someone driving down the road, listening, 
to yeah. us talk about a video. No, listening to the video. Well, okay. Like, let me give you an example. Oh, Let, go ahead. Let's just play the video of vegetable. Uh, this is a vegetable singing. Sounds like they foggy bottom boys. You know what's amazing? I've never seen a root. I've never seen a rutabaga sing. Hmm. It's a great video. And the Washington Post is not reporting on this. We are, we're bringing this news. Like we can wait for the New York Times to cover that? Mm. We bring you stuff on this show. Many other shows would not go near. They wouldn't we, even go. They wouldn't even prob- touch Probably it. with good reason. We have no limits. <laughs> <laughs> or like filter or sensor. We have, we have sensors. Do we? Well, we yeah. We have filters. We have some people in the other room that come running in with their hair on fire. Yeah. Why did you say that? Sure. And then we just say we can't control Ben. It's always Ben. Ben just talks. When in doubt. I didn't know there were rules for radio. There's a couple, yeah. There's a couple. At least seven. We got a great show, uh, but first let's get to the headlines. Terry South, what's up with the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut ended his nearly 15-hour filibuster early Thursday after GOP leaders allegedly agreed to allow votes on two potential gun control bills. Murphy said he felt satisfied with the compromise after vowing to stand and speak until we get some signal, some sign that we can come together. The two measures that will be voted on involve whether to expand background checks at gun shows and online sales, as well as whether to ban those on on the terrorist watch list from obtaining gun licenses. We did not have that commitment when we started today, Murphy said. During the filibuster, the Connecticut Democrat discussed mass shootings, background checks, and banning of gun sales on those watch lists. Murphy was a congressman for the district surrounding the Sandy Hook area and shared stories of explaining to families that after almost four years, Congress has done nothing to reduce the likelihood of mass shootings. The filibuster was the ninth longest in the Senate since 1900 when the Senate began keeping records. The longest filibuster was 24 hours, 18 minutes by Senator Strom Thurmond from South Carolina as he attempted to stall the passing of the Civil Rights Act. He reportedly read from historical documents to pass the time. Mm. I read this morning. Oh, you, a, that's a, I love a good filibuster. Did you see any of that last night? It was no. on C-SPAN. Oh, was it? Yeah. Well, so he was just reading history books. Well, no, that was Strom Thurmond. What, this what guy, was this guy doing? He was reading letters from, from parents from Sandy Hook. Oh, really? He was talking about personal experiences as being the congressman, having to go and talk with yeah. people and deal with that situation. See, that's more real. There were 20 other senators that were in the Senate chambers with him. Che- che- like cheering him on, they supporting were stand- him. He would hand off. in a, Like they would ask. He would allow them to ask questions. He wouldn't yield the floor. Yeah. They could ask a question, but they go, but before I ask my question, and then he'd go off for 10 minutes. Give him a break. Yeah, that's great. And then they would ask a question. What? What do you think about this? And then he'd pick it up. And they keep ask going. a ten-minute question while he goes to the bathroom. Yeah, basically. Well, he—I don't know if he could leave the floor. Well, that's yeah, gross. You, yeah. you can't go to the bathroom. While you so you basically have to dehydrate before you uh, before you go. That's actually <laughs> why Rand Paul stopped his filibuster because he had to go to the bathroom. He had to so go. Bad. Did he really? Yeah. And he's a doctor. But during the he knows that that'll destroy you for life. During the filibuster, they were talking about how the mezzanine, the upper area, where you can yeah. go in and watch. Usually, you know, during the day, people are coming and going, and then at night, it trickles off because, you know, tourists are gone and things. But he goes, it's interesting how people keep coming in. He goes, it's, it's midnight Eastern, and people still are still coming in to see, coming the, filibuster. In to see the filibuster That's and see cool. what's going on. And then it actually produced something that looks that possibly this is going to happen, and they're Good going job, to Chris Murphy. Make, a, make a difference here. The That's National cool. Rifle Association has announced that anyone on the terrorist watch list who attempts to purchase a gun should have the sale delayed and be investigated by the FBI. 
Wow, really? Except they've said this before after Paris. All they're saying is, let's enforce the laws that are already on the books. Okay, so if... Nothing new. But let's not get a new law that actually says you can do that. Well, no, the way it works now is if you're on the terrorist walk, watch list, there is yeah. uh, there is some checks. But the sad thing is this guy wasn't on the watch list, but he had been investigated three times by the FBI. Those checks of the terrorist watch list, 90% of them go through. Are you serious? That's what I was reading this morning. So what they're saying yeah. is let's make it a little bit more difficult yeah. for someone who the FBI is saying, hey, we should be concerned about right. this person Common to get sense. a gun. Let's in our, in our race, get out there again. The NRA so far isn't committed to going that far what they want is that people are on the watch list if they're on there and they're not supposed to be there that there is a a way to get off of it and right now yeah. there's a process but it's it's bureaucratic there's paperwork it, it's really hard if you're not supposed to be there how do you get off it that's what they want to know that's what they want to streamline it seems like this is something we could solve not it, us but it seems very the country very simple yeah there's there should be a list and if you're not supposed and, to be on it get off doctors psychiatrists a, a, a bunch of people should be able to put you on the list and then there should be a very quick process to yes. remove you from the list donald trump came out on and i will twitter last night i believe and was saying that uh this should go forward. We should make it really difficult for yeah. if you're on the list to get a gun. And then Hillary's like, now you're talking guns. Yeah. yeah. She so, didn't sound like that. But. This is all continuing. The filibuster was interesting to watch, a little function of our government sometimes. Right. Usually it's just for show. This is, may actually end up Wouldn't that be crazy if a tragedy happen. finally, for once, changed something? We'll see what happens. Right. Uh, Florida officials alleged on Wednesday that Disney – would remove alligators from the area where a two-year-old was dragged into a lake on Tuesday. The body of the two-year-old was found, but Disney may have some issues on their hand. They have a full-time staff observing these waters, and they have essentially an open permit system where any time Disney sees an alligator or they get a complaint of an alligator, that alligator can be taken out. This is according to Florida Fish and Game. The swamp guys. They're, they have people, or they can call in people to help and take the, out whatever alligator uh-huh. are in these pools surrounding their resorts. Uh, they said that the uh, the area around the swimming hole where the two year old it's not a swimming it's a it's a it's like a it's a man made lake mm-hmm. and around this area there's no swimming signs up but there's no warning of alligators they pulled f- they killed five alligators yesterday looking, in that looking for the two year they got to find the one by the one by the way that boy was like I guess standing in a foot of water when yes. the alligator got him but the dad jumped in the water and tried to open the mouth of the alligator and cut his hand trying to save his boy. It's crazy. Can you imagine as a dad in that moment having to face this? Right. And, and then, then the mom up on the shore screaming. And probably. then yesterday, anyone in sort of a leadership position for Disney World was in Shanghai because they're opening Shanghai Disneyland. Oh, yeah, mega Diz. And they turned around and flew back home oh, because tragedy. they're like, we have to I mean, and you, Disneyland's dying. They don't want this to happen. Oh, no. It's all they found horrible. the boy, just a few puncture wounds, so he probably drowned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just tragic. Just bad. Moving on, Oakland, California got its third police chief in a single week on Wednesday as the interim police chief Ben Farlow was let go. Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff said did not provide specifics about the shift in leadership, but an ongoing investigation into the department revealed that up to 21 officers had a sexual relationship with a teenage sex worker. <sighs> And uh, former Oakland police chief Sean Wren resigned last week for personal reasons. So they have their third police chief. Holy in, cow. In a, in a week. I mean, again, these are all, these are law enforcement. Yeah. 
They're adult. They're and adults. There's a whole story around that situation that's just crazy that that went on. And a tourist from China was fined one thousand dollars for walking off a boardwalk at Yellowstone National Park and collecting thermal water, <laughs> apparently for medicinal purposes. This is from park officials. Um, this comes after a week that uh, someone walked off the path and fell into one of the geysers yeah, and don't died. Don't go near the geyser. Or one of the hot springs. So, Holy cow. Stay on the paths at Yellowstone. When will they learn? When will they learn? Hey, by the way, uh, Kasich, he's not, he's not going with Trump. He's not, not yet. Can't do it yet. Uh, governor of Ohio, where we're going to be holding the Cleveland Convention, his, his view of uh, his ability to vote for Trump. Look, I'm sorry that this has happened, but I mean, we'll see where it ends up. It's, I'm not making any final decision yet, but at this point, I just can't do it. There's this thing called Republican loyalty. I've been a Republican all my life. How do you think I feel about this? Right. I'm the Republican governor of Ohio. It's difficult with some people who pound on me. I said, I'm not prepared to do it, and he's going to have to change. Hmm. That's finally Someone somebody that, yeah. is saying change. Or I'm not with you. During the interview, Joe Scarborough, who did the interview, asked about Paul Ryan. And that's really what he was trying Uh to get to was Paul Ryan. And Kasich kept saying, I I can't speak for him. I can only speak for me. I'm the governor of Ohio. It's still difficult for me. Right. But what about the speaker? And it's like, well, he goes and he said, uh, Kasich said he's torn. You can see that Trump isn't the guy that he agrees with. But for party unity, he wants to support the candidate. And 40% of Republicans were with him, right? And so So, he has to come out. You have Paul Ryan like two, three times this week coming out against things that Trump is saying. Yeah. It's a weird position. Do you vote for your values uh, in those those kind of positions or do you need to vote for your people and what they have said? I was reading in uh, Politico, many congresspeople – are just not we're not going to talk day to day about the election we just can't do this anymore there's so many things every single oh. day you show up with more things you have to comment on there no we're not going to talk about this every day oh see that's the key we're i mean, just skipping it but i think if we can get about 10 more Kasichs to say something then th- that are in positions like that i mean Kasich's a swing state a mm-hmm. major important state where the convention will be held and what the third was he the second to la- second to last to drop out yes so he's – and he, I think he had said, hey, I'll support the nominee. Mm-hmm. He did. He, he signed whatever pledge the RNC had him sign. So Donald's probably saying, well, see, you, you pledged. Mm-hmm. But Donald has to represent too. If you're not going to represent the people, Donald, then – so get 10 more Kasichs and that will turn Donald. And if it doesn't, we'll then <laughs> – if it doesn't, honestly, then all of a sudden that convention is going to get crazy. <sighs> Like we needed more drama. Like we needed more drama. Seriously, it's fudge day for crying out loud. What the? It's also fresh veggies day. Take your pick. You can go to the light side or the dark side. If you want to be heavy and fat because you ate fudge, go for it. That's the light side, right? This is the heavy side. Oh. Dark side. Dark side? Oh. Fudge is dark. Well, I mean, fudge makes you heavy, but it also makes you happier, right? Well, for about a 20 minutes. Yeah. Then you have the crash, and then you're eating Cheetos, watching reruns of Full House. But if, if you eat the vegetables, then it's just like constant mediocrity. Like you, you constant never health. Feel, it's called health. Well, you just never feel. And your colon cleansed, it's all good. It's all good. That's why we're here, folks, giving you this insight. The stuff you don't get on other stations. 
to live longer, love stronger. That's the goal. Hey, coming up, we're going to be talking with Carol Muffet about um, a conspiracy, an apparent conspiracy. The oil industry has known for about 50 years that the negative impacts to the environment because of CO2 levels. They've been hiding it, apparently. We're going to find out. Is there another scandal that's gone on for 50 years? Stick with us. We'll find out. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, according to an almost 50-year-old report uncovered by Washington-based Center for International Environmental Law, oil executives have been well aware of the serious climate risks associated with carbon dioxide emissions. And they've known about it for decades. This uh, extensive cover-up mirrors the controversy of big tobacco, remember, that they faced uh, during some of the lawsuits. And uh, many are looking for oil companies to claim responsibility for their cover-up. Our guest today is uh, Carol Muffet. He is a um, he is the president and CEO of the Center for International Law, or sorry, Environmental Law. And uh, Muffet says that these documents reveal that the industry was clearly on notice about the potential role of fossil fuels in CO two emissions, and uh, they did everything they could to um, to hide and to shape uh, science um, and to shape the public opinion. And so we wanted to talk to Carol today about uh, some of these statements. And uh, Carol, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, talk to us. Well, first of all, welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Talk to us about these documents. Um, where did these Where did these records come from that had been hidden for so long? Well, they were hidden in plain sight, as it, as it happens. And in fact, if, if people want to go out and do this research on their own, um, I encourage them to do so. I think this is one of the real breakthroughs in our work. Many of these documents were found uh, just through deep research into, into the web, in Google Scholar, in, in Google Books, and in you know, and, and, and paywalled research sites. So many of these documents were, were public in the sense that they are publicly accessible, um, but they are they were very difficult to find, and it you know it, it was the culmination of several years of research to to pull them all together and to put them into into a coherent structure and a, and and what they revealed was you know far more than we ever anticipated. These these were university studies, I guess, professors from all over the country in different fields doing the studies. Well, some were university studies, but much of what the oil industry was funding, they were funding um, private laboratories to do, mm. uh, centers that looked independent, but in fact, you know, specialized in, specialized in industry-funded research. Uh, one of the most, one of the longest partnerships and one of the most important that we found um, came out of, a, out of a relationship that the American Petroleum Institute had with Stanford Research Institute, and this was an institution that that the oil industry actually helped establish. They were the prime, their primary early funder, and indeed, you know, indeed, one of the you know, an oil industry executive is considered one of the fathers and architects of of the institute. And oil companies were actively involved in its governance in the early years, um, and it was ultimately Stanford Research Institute researchers who you know warned the American Petroleum Institute in 1968 
that the risks of climate change were, were significant and that the best fit to the available data for what was causing CO2 to rise was fossil fuels. Wow. In fact, this, this is what, you, what was in the article. Um, if the Earth's temperature increases significantly, this is from Stanford Research, I believe, uh, industry, um, increasing, increases significantly, a number of events might be expected to occur, including melting of the Antarctic ice cap, a rise in sea levels, warming of the oceans, and an increase in photosynthesis, right? Back in 1968. And it's important to recognize that this, this, this research in 1968 wasn't, wasn't new even then. What, what our documents also showed was that by 1958, the entire oil industry was funding research into CO2 in the atmosphere. And very importantly, they were doing it in the context of what they called the Smoke and Fumes Committee. Oh, and wow. this, this commu- committee was actually established you know, with the express purpose of funding science and pushing and promoting that science to the public, essentially to encourage public skepticism of environmental regulation. Um, the, 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 there are these very telling industry histories of this committee where they talk about panicky people. And, you know, the last thing, often the last thing you need is a new law to address a pollution problem. Um, it was really, you know, one of the things that drove this research was an anticipation that there would be a time before the tobacco scandal when the oil companies might have been less guarded about what they said in public on these issues. And, and that is indeed what we found. Um, and if you look far enough back, what you really what you, what's really telling is that there were there were times when the oil companies were very directly and very explicitly engaged on climate science uh, decades before people anticipate. And you, I, I guess, you always suspected this. This, Carol, you're saying you were able to go out now and find a slew of data and evidence, information that the companies knew this, and then were creating like misinformation campaigns. You will. I think what's really important to recognize is that the, the misinformation campaigns have been well-documented for many, many years. If you look at the Exxon New website and, and um, you know, ex- exposures that have come from Greenpeace, from Naomi Oreskes' book, Merchants of Doubt, they tell the story of the, the denial campaigns really very clearly. And so I don't feel that that was something that we needed to do. What we wanted to understand is, all right, if they're, if they're promoting denialism, if they're promoting climate skepticism, what did the companies themselves know? Uh-huh. And I think that was the real breakthrough in our research is that we were dem- able to demonstrate precisely what the companies knew far earlier than anyone anticipated. And in, indeed, the, you know, we have, a, we have a, one of the papers that we found is a scientific report that Exxon researchers were doing. The company was Humble Oil at the time, but yeah. it was an Exxon subsidiary, that, that they did in 1957 um, at a time when they were, they were actually responding to what was cutting-edge climate science in 1957 and expressly acknowledging that the, that the most important culprit – in CO2 in the atmosphere was the burning of fossil fuels. So that means that we've got a clear record from from 1957 onward of of the companies engaging in this work. And it's it's not surprising. One of the things that it's important to understand is the oil industry's business is carbon, understanding how how it moves in the environment, where to find it, what happens to it when it's burned. 
Um, the really surprising thing in our research was that it became clear over the course of our research that you know through the first half of the 20th century, there was no other industry on the planet that was better equipped to understand climate science than the oil industry was. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, they knew what they were talking about. They they were they were on it, and it was their business, right? Yeah, and and the and the important thing here is to recognize that once the companies know this information, once they have it, they can't unlearn it. Yeah. And so everything that they have done in the everything that they've done in the ensuing decades, all of the information that they've pushed out in the ensuing decades is against this backdrop of the clear knowledge that they had about the reality of climate risks. And and I guess too the the magnification of kind of the global warming denying you know, uh, misinformation that, I mean, that on top of all of it just seems like, yeah, they're, they're playing dirty. And, and the true tragedy here is the lost time. You know, if you consider that uh, there, there, there was this truly telling moment in the summer of 1988, um, Dr. James Hansen of NASA went before Congress and what he said to Congress was that we could now for the first time confirm that the climate warming signal had emerged from the background natural variation. Um, In other words, in 1988, Dr. Hansen was able to say, climate change has now moved from theory to reality. We can confirm that the warming that we're seeing, we would not be seeing but for human-caused climate change. Mm. That same summer, in fact, just days later, a meeting of, of lawyers, scientists, global leaders, business leaders in Toronto, Canada, it was, it was the first world climate conference, adopted an action plan. And one of the key elements for both governments and industry in this action plan was a call for governments and industry to begin labeling products um, so that consumers understood their carbon content and the climate risk associated with them. Imagine, if you will, that that in 1988 or two decades before that, the oil industry had actually started, instead of denying climate change, warning consumers, this product carries risks that you need to consider. Um, that is that is a really profound. It's it's really profound to consider that more than half of CO2 emitted into the atmosphere was emitted since 1988. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So time, that, no wonder. Yeah. Time is the, that's the big loss. We've lost time and added tons and tons and tons of um, pollution. Let's, uh, Carol, let's take a break. Come back. I want to find out what you do with this. Is this, um, when we come back, is this, is this something that going, is going to turn into like the tobacco, uh, you know, blowback and, um, or, or, is there even a hope of that? Um, we'll get back to this more with Carol Muffet again, uh, t- taking on the, I guess the scandal, really the the controversy of the oil companies knowing for fifty plus years about the impact that fossil fuels have on uh, the environment, and really not doing much about it except misinforming. Interesting lessons, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. For uh, more than 50 years, the um, there's evidence that shows that you know oil companies, fuel companies, gas companies have known about uh, the impact that fossil fuels have in CO2 emissions and the and what that does to our environment. And um, Carol Muffet joins us. He's from the Center for International Environmental Law and is is making a case that uh, these companies have known this for years, more than 50 years, and yet have still, uh, you know, promoted and propagated uh, beliefs, even the denial of global warming and some of its impacts. Um, and he's here today to, t- to just, I guess, reveal to us what information has been found and, and maybe, I think, enlighten us as to what what's really going on with uh, with this debate. Carol Muffet, thank you again so much for being with us. Thanks. I'm happy to do it. Talk to us about um, what. Where does this go from here? The the. I mean, it is. It's cover up. I mean, a lot of this is business. We we had people on the show a while ago talking about how major um, you know soda manufacturing companies go out and and pay for their own. Um, you know, studies and then treat those studies as fact and science. This seems like a pretty typical thing for big business. What, how do you fight this? Well, I think that, you know, I think it's not uncommon for companies to fund their own science, but the question is, at what point do, does what they're saying in the public begin to disagree with what they know to be, to be Facts. a fact? And I think here, uh, what, the response that we're seeing is, you know, is, is reflected in what is a rising tide of climate litigation. Obviously, climate litigation has been building um, for a number of years, but what we're, what we're really seeing is uh, an incredible momentum, a shift in, a shift in the speed and the, the success rate for new litigation. And I think the, the really troubling thing that the oil companies are now facing is that they're not just looking at individual plaintiffs anymore or even individual, even small communities. Now they're facing investigation by states and attorney, attorneys general who are, have you know, legitimate questions about, about whether these companies, Exxon and other oil companies, misled consumers, mm. misled regulators, misled investors about the risks of their products. Um, we saw the first of these investigations launch last fall with, an, uh, with a subpoena issued by the New York Attorney General. Subsequently, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Massachusetts, and other states have begun to join as well. Um, and this is, this is similar to what we saw in the context of the tobacco litigation, where, where you know, for the first several decades, or for the first few decades of the tobacco litigation, the story was always the same. The plaintiff always loses, right? And, and they could happened, just be pushed down. They could be oppressed by the big company. Exactly. And but what happened with the tobacco litigation is, with each new case, more information came to light, and our understanding of what the tobacco companies knew um, became deeper. And ultimately, the tobacco companies were facing not only individual plaintiffs, but then class actions, and then class actions brought not by smokers themselves, but by the children and other secondhand smokers who themselves weren't smoking the cigarettes. And then ultimately they faced, in, faced litigation from state attorneys general who were looking to 
recoup health care costs um, and other, other, other impacts to the state. This is similar to what the oil companies are increasingly going to face. They're going to face investigations not only from states, but cities looking to recoup the costs of, of, of climate impacts on their infrastructure. Investors who will want to know whether these companies properly disclose the risks associated with their products and with their investments. Um, we're really at the dawn of what is likely to be decades of litigation facing Exxon and other oil producers. Wow. And that's, um, again, it doesn't make up for the lost time, does it? No, it doesn't make up for the lost time, but just as in the tobacco context, one thing that it may do is bring the truth to light. And I think one of the things that is likely to help, you know, help move this forward is, is for people to understand um, the extent to which they were actively misled by the companies that were producing the products they were buying, um, while, you know, because people don't like to be lied to. Right. Do you teach us? Because there's so many people that um, I hear of that are ju- there's just skeptics of global warming. Um, but teach us what we need to know. I mean, why is it so easy for some to just follow the oil industry um, and believe you know big business and the oil industry? Especially when they just drive through a city and they they just see the junk in the air. Um, what do we need to know about um, global warming that that might make it easier for somebody that's that's kind of on the fence to understand? Well, I think the most important thing to understand about global warming is that this idea of sowing uncertainty about emphasizing debate um, is a very old playbook, and I think that is one of the really key messages from our research is that the oil industry is using on climate change the very same playbook it used for smog in the 1940s. If you're losing on the science, emphasize the uncertainty. Find some small area of doubt and repeat that area over and over and over again so that doubt becomes the story. But in truth, the the, the core facts, the core science around climate change has been settled for decades. Certainly there have been uncertainties about the speed at, with it, at which it would happen, about the scale of impacts, but the fundamental relationship between CO2 and rising, temperature, rising global temperatures has been clear for many decades. And I think when you understand that, when you understand that the physics here is actually, you know, the, the core physics is, is profoundly simple, um, it, I think it, 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 it it helps to, to get past the uncertainty around, well, you know, what is the timing? What is the scale of impacts? And the reality is we are seeing, we are seeing these impacts already. We are living them um, and in, in, increasing, in increasing ways around the world. Do you, do you see a way um, that the oil industry could turn um, in a way that would, you know um, – not make up for, but would show sincere desire to to become more honest about it and and more open about it and become a partner in I mean I guess a more real partner in in fighting for the envir- environment. I think that's I think that's the million dollar question. I think that one of the first things that you would expect to see is is clear recognition 
and clear acceptance of of past deception, yeah. uh, an acknowledgement that uh, an acknowledgement that that the companies have actively funded uh, funded the dissemination of information that they themselves understood not to be true or not to be or, or not to be completely true. Um, and this is, I think, this would be a beginning. Ultimately, ultimately the. The oil companies can be part of the solution when they move beyond oil, when they become energy companies that are focused on on true and cleaner solutions to climate change. Yeah, and that's uh, boy, that's that's a big turn, no matter what, right? So, ironically, you know, among the documents we found were were, were documents that demonstrated that Exxon had patents for clean energy technologies in the 1950s and 60s that they huh. chose not to develop. Um, we know that that Exxon uh, and and other companies were investing in in solar energy product projects in the 1970s, but again chose not to pursue them. So these opportunities were out there, and indeed, you know, at one stage in its development, BP changed its name to Beyond Petroleum and began promoting itself as 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 looking beyond the oil era. Huh. Um, it, but a new CEO came in and and took the company backwards. What it what this demonstrates is, you know, at, at its heart, these companies should be about energy, not about oil. Right. And it's important to recognize that distinction. Yeah, and it seems like um, they, they now probably just have in their files so many patents that they've bought, so many companies, so many ideas and tools that they they could probably become very quickly the innovators of the future of fuel. That's, that's almost certainly the case. I mean, if, if, our, if our research demonstrates anything, it's that the, these companies have had the technology, have had the expertise, have had the resources for decades to have been leaders on these issues. And unfortunately, they chose a different path. Yeah. And I guess, again, because that really is the purpose of your organization, right, is to um, – to just you know protect the environment and but further the information so that so that the environment can be healthy and strong. Yeah, uh, CL, you know, CL's work, our mission is to protect both human rights and the environment. And climate change is one of the places where these issues of human rights and environment come into sharpest focus. You know, the we have worked with communities who who are being displaced from ancestral homes, places that where they've their families have lived for literally thousands of years, and they're being pushed off by rising seas. Um, we work with communities who have you know, confronted, been confronted firsthand by the impacts of, of more intense typhoons, um, by, by drought, by glacial melt. Um, these, these issues are not abstract. For people around the world, they are, they are fundamentally issues of of life and death and of livelihood and of rights. Mm. And you're on the front. I mean, the, the cutting edge of that, I, it's interesting too. Yeah, we don't always see the human impact just of losing your, your tribal land, right, or your, your homestead. It's, um, it is, it's tragic. And well, we appreciate uh, the great work you're doing, Carol. Again, Carol Muffet uh, with SEAL, Center for International Law – or sorry, Center for International Environmental Law – and you can go to the website, uh, www.ciel.org. Thank you again, Carol, for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Wow, really. Um, 
you don't think about the impact, right? I get it. They're, money. They're after money. You got to get the money. Push the oil. Get the money. Um, and whatever your your view, there's there is research, and to know that research was done by these companies and known fifty plus years ago, and still hidden, just to make the money. Um, we've got to be responsible. Not just to each other, but to this earth and to everybody. We'll take a break, folks. Hopefully uh, on the goal here to help you live longer on uh, Mother Earth. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you you hear about big oil, you know, and maybe and keeping these secrets, and yet still promoting the fact that um, and denying global warming, denying all of that. It's hard to trust, right? Big companies, and we've seen that more and more people don't trust big institutions. But one institution that's really also taking a hit is the media. The media are they're they're not they're not trusted. But, uh, Terry, you found an article about newspapers specifically. Every year, the Gallup polling company, I guess you'd call them, they, uh, they put out a America's Confidence type of uh, polling data on media. And they specifically look at uh, TV and news and they look at newspapers. And this year, uh, they put out, it says, the 20% of Americans who are confident in newspapers as a U.S. institution hit an all-time low this year, making the are marking the 10th consecutive year that more Americans express little or no rather than high confidence in the institution. The percentage of Americans expressing a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers has been dwindling since 2000, and the percentage expressing very little or none finally eclipsed it in 20, uh, 2007. The percentage with low confidence has only expanded since, hmm. tying a previous high of 36. So right now, more in the U.S. have a low 36% than a high 20% confidence in newspapers. Wow. I mean, to me, they seem more like the journalists. You would think. Right? Feet yeah. on the street, kind of a pen by, or a pencil behind their ear, a little notepad. So it says one in five U.S. adults now say they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers. Hmm. One in five. One in five. The all-time low for newspapers and Gallup's trending dates back, what, 1973? That was their low. The additional 42% of U.S. adults say they have some confidence, meaning that the institution still sparks at least a measure of confidence in a majority of Americans. However, the days when more than twice as many Americans expressed high rather than low confidence in newspapers are long gone. Man. It says Democrats, young adults, no longer confident in newspapers. But I wonder, what's the confidence level of the Twitter news feed? Yeah. Or Facebook's trending? That's the other thing is, it sounds, for me, it sounds ridiculous. But there are people that have a confusion between what they see on Facebook and a newspaper. Right. And they don't understand that some of the sources you see on Facebook are not like news they're a blog in the sense that the journalistic standards, they're just printing things. They don't try to source things and find out, is yeah. this true? They go, oh, look what I heard. And they, then they publish it. But they do it with the right language that it makes it seem, seem legit. legit. 
when they're just hmm. putting something out there with no. But newspapers you know. too are also usually more local, right? Mm-hmm. So what that might also be telling us then these younger the younger generations where are they getting their local news? Hmm. Maybe they're not. Maybe, Maybe they're not. They're not connecting to the local. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, does it matter why the freeway was stopped anymore? <laughs> Just if you're stopped on right. the freeway, yeah. So if you're going to hear a story, the, those that aren't looking to local news, they probably are hearing it maybe on the radio, I guess. But maybe they're either not caring or they're listening to stuff about the Orlando shooting instead of why right. the freeway was backed up for four hours. I, I personally wait till my mom tells me. Your mom just calls every day with a little news yeah. update. Because, I mean, a lot Terry, of, here's your news update. A lot of times local things aren't of great importance. Yeah. You know, they might be a cat caught in a tree type of importance. <laughs> but occasionally something rises to be very yeah. important. And then, you know, usually I get a phone call from All of a sudden when you see smoke from your neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. You're like, concerned. hey, I to check the news. Yeah, I always get a phone call from my mom. Did you see this on Facebook? I'm like, well, your Facebook's different than mine and did probably you, not. And <laughs> speaking of news, did you hear about this Austrian, Australian uh, lawmaker who in his campaign ad, he shoots his opponents? So what? all the people that he was running against in the uh, – he, Like I took these people out type of – Pretty event? much. Oh, wow. Pretty much. It's two men wearing shirts for Australia's major political parties, the conservative liberal party and center-left labor party. And they put up an ad, um, an Australia for sale placard. And then seconds later, the video cuts to a smiling – one of these guys is smiling, blowing smoke from the barrel of his gun. Hmm. As the camera pans down to the two men that, that his opponents that were apparently lying dead. Wow. That's probably going over well. That's, uh, yeah, that's, it's now, it's L- not led, good. L- people balloon, are mad, right? especially on the hills of Orlando. And so, <laughs> yeah, people are mad. But you know what? Interesting. Let's see if he wins. He went, I mean, uh, right now, a lot of crazy stuff is uh, becoming popular, especially in the political world. Let's just keep, let's keep. A good gun discussion is good, but let's keep the actual guns out of our ads for the political world. Ah, We'll take a break, folks. Uh, Next hour, we're going to talk about how not to be taken over by a jerk. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Or let's say middle of the morning to you. Got a great show for you this hour. Um, we will be talking today about how not to be fooled by jerks. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, have we needed that one. How not to be fooled by jerks or how not to become one also. You don't want to become a jerk. So really the art of the jerk. There's people that will they'll fool you. They'll trick you. They'll get you to believe something. You may even open up your wallet for it. And just off you go, sliding away, losing your money. Next thing you know, you're in a major international ice cream scam with some guy making ice cream from his bathtub. Allegedly. Allegedly. Sorry. Not to go off, but I did invest. 
Is there such thing as ice cream Ponzi schemes? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to, like, as soon as more investors come in, you'll get paid. Yeah. By the way, the ice, my favorite ice cream is, is uh, the Ponzi scheme. That is the, guy, the best flavor you've ever tasted. Have you not had that? I have not. Ask Ben to make you some Ponzi scheme. Ponzi scheme. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. got some gummy frogs in it. Oh, it's so good. Okay. Make sure he strains it, though. Always make sure he strains the Ponzi scheme ice the cream, ice cream the, before he lets it set up. Well, I mean, I do unstrained and strained. And well, you used to call it high fiber, low fiber. <laughs> yeah, well, after, after working with my focus group, I changed yeah. it a little bit. Did, he, did I tell you the one time I was uh, tasting some of Ben's ice cream and I uh, loofah, um, a little piece of his loofah That's gross. was in the ice cream. I That's think why that I, is slander. I, I kind of feel the word loofah <laughs> is kind of word. gross. Yeah. It's kind of a gross word. Loofah? Yeah. What is loofah? I don't even know. How do you say loofah in German? I don't even know what it is. It's the little sponge thing that people use in it's the shower like, yeah. instead of a wash it's rack. It's the thing that scratches you when you use it. It's to exfoliate. Oh. Allegedly. I just use it to like scratch my back. What was that word? Exfoliate. How do you know that word? I I, I live with a, a female who talks about exfoliating because apparently it's a thing. Can you just set your man card down right now? No, I'm, I know, but it's not. I don't. I don't like adhere to exfoliation. That I just is a let word it happen. You don't hear a lot of men. I use. just let it happen naturally. Excuse me, Larry. I'd like to go golfing with you this morning, but I've got to go exfoliate. <laughs> exfoliate. <laughs> Holy cow! My skin cells are just totally backing up on me. <laughs> I've got to somehow get them off my system. Mm. Anyway, uh, how not to be fooled by a jerk. We're, we'll be getting into that in just a bit. That was a tangent. That was a total tangent not to go there. But uh, we got a, we got a, just a ton of great articles. Um, in fact, pretty soon we'll be getting to a Western shootout. One man, one gun, mm. one door. Okay. Stick with us. We'll get to that in a second. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from uh, Connecticut, declared the beginning of a filibuster Wednesday, just after 11 a.m. Eastern. He continued for 15 hours. He just walked. He walked onto the floor and started talking and then let everyone know he's going to stand here for as long as it takes. Until he gets uh, gets what's it was funny on C-SPAN as I flipped it over last night I was looking at it they kept running at the bottom what business is on the floor it was some electro power bill yeah. something other that the Senate was debating but that was the next course of business but he held it up for fifteen hours because he wanted he felt that the uh, these gun control measures needed to be addressed all he wants is a vote That's great that's great. And it's still not not yeah, yeah he, who knows he, where it'll go. He feels like he got some progress that there will at least be a vote. But where yeah. those will go, I don't know. There's there's a bill from the House, there's a bill in the Senate, maybe they can merge the two and mm-hmm. figure out a way to figure out a compromise. Come but, on, come on, let's do something. Working. But he uh, he went for 15 hours uh, the Democrats and him and him and other Democrats have demanded that Republicans reach an agreement about legislation that will require universal background checks, make it more difficult for suspected terrorists to get a hold of guns. He ended the filibuster with this clip five. And ask yourself, what can you do to make sure that Orlando or Sandy Hook never, ever happens again? With deep gratitude to all those who have endured this very, very late night, I yield the floor. 
I'm out. As he's standing there, a stenographer has to be there to record all the business of the Senate. So I mean, he, all kinds of people were still involved with this. That is cool. As a guy that filibusters three hours a day, right? that is some seriously hard work. You have to stand. You can't leave the, the room. You can't go potty. You can't. You just gotta just... Well, you can't leave to go potty. Right. I guess you could just. What you do know. you do? Like, I guess, yeah, you said you dehydrate. You got to yeah, dehydrate. You, you got to prep. Yeah, you can't just walk in the door and decide to do one of these. Like, what if you. I don't know. That's just. It's you probably free... sit for a couple hours in the senatorial steam room. To... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a great. It'll dehydrate that way. Because you know they have one. Yeah, we need one here. A steam room? Yeah. A BYU steam room? Mm-hmm. I usually just pop the temperature up a couple degrees. I've noticed that. Yeah, it gets kind of hot. Sweat fest. President Obama will visit the site of the Orlando nightclub shooting today as he's done after other mass shootings to meet with families of the victims as well as people who survived the attack. The visit comes as Obama continues to try to deflect criticism that he has not done enough to fight ISIS and that he does not understand the full threat of radical Islam. And as President Trump – or President Trump, see what I did there? Yeah. President possibility for the uh, Republican yeah. Party nominee, Trump, yeah. as he said yesterday that he's justified in what he said about Trump working with terrorists or being part of the – I don't know. There was something that was uh, – there were documents put out yesterday that was making a, a connection between President Obama and different groups of al-Qaeda and how the U.S. is funding al-Qaeda Man. or something. So he's deflecting. He's trying to deal with that as he's going down to Orlando to meet with families and first responders. On Wednesday, Senator Ron Johnson, chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, released a letter with what he said were posts from one of five Facebook accounts believed to be linked with Omar Mateen, the gunman who shot 49 people at the nightclub in Orlando Sunday morning. Mateen pledged allegiance to ISIS on Facebook before he started shooting, and an unidentified person familiar with the situation told the Associated Press that Mateen also searched Facebook for Pulse Orlando and shooting during the attack, strongly suggesting that he was searching for his social media impact. He's measuring his viral, the viral shockwave of his attack on the nightclub to see if it do, was resonating. Do we know why yet it took like three hours, four hours for the SWAT to storm? Because he was in there for hours. He was. There were police that went in initially, but then after he kind of barricaded himself oh, in the did. back, they backed out. And then they ended up blowing – they put explosives on a wall and went through That's a wall. Right. To, but it took a while because they were negotiating with him because he talked with the police for a while. They were trying to get him to come out peacefully. So, But initially, yeah, the, there were several first responders because the Miami police are trained to go in yeah. after a, a, well, a shooter like this. And I like guess, this. too, you, there's a rule that you don't want to go – you don't want to storm in or you'll just right. send 20 cops in to be – and it's a hail, hail of gunfire and yeah. either they get hurt or people inside get hurt. So uh. – um, let me see here. Skip ahead. Oh, by the way, it's the one-year anniversary of Donald Trump beginning his campaign. Remember when he he came down the escalator at one of his casinos? Yeah. Wasn't he like swinging on a ball? A little bit. <laughs> so today, Just scratching into stuff. One year ago today. Wow, it's been man. It's felt like a decade. It's been the longest year. Was this his birthday present last year? Probably. He goes. I'm yeah. rewarding myself. La- this year, India or wherever it was had some people sing to him. Last year, it was the Wrecking Ball. <laughs> Here I come. And finally, Darren McFadden. He might lose a spot as the Dallas Cowboys starting running back thanks to a slippery iPhone. Oh no! McFadden, fourth in the league in rushing last season, nearly dropped his brand new iPhone. Almost done this myself. In fact, I have done this and like bought it at the store. 
walked right out, out of your hands. dropped it, Boink. broke it like within 15 minutes of buying it. Oh, I hate that feeling. And then trying to figure out how do I replace this? What's it going to cost mm-hmm. me? Ugh. Well, Darren McFadden did this. And in the, the struggle to make sure that he didn't break his phone, he cracked his right elbow. <sighs> A team coach tells us that the Dallas Morning News, McFadden underwent surgery on Tuesday, is expected to be out for at least two months, and they just drafted rookie Ezekiel Elliott, who was the Ohio State running back, who is a Uh-oh. exceptional running back, McFadden, at least against college careful. talent. So uh, he could be taking his place and maybe his starting position when the season kicks uh, off. You know what? That's the difference between like a, an NBA-level athlete and myself, because if – when an NBA or an NFL athlete uh, loses his phone, his quick reflex muscles has him like diving to catch it because yeah. he still has three chances mm-hmm. to stop it from hitting the ground. Right. My reflexes are more like once I see it leave my hand and then it flies mm. and it hits the ground and bounces once, yeah. then a second time and then shatters right about right before the third hit. Yeah. My shoulder will twitch. Yeah. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> no. No, my, my, my trick is I'll, I'll drop it and then I'll try to like slow it down by putting my foot underneath it. Yeah. And that usually that, that, works. No, I've done that, Pele. Yeah, you sort of. That's a great one. You sort of like, it's not a kick. It's more it's just, just you're a, trying to. It's just like you try to catch the ball. Soften your, the blow uh-huh. a little bit and yeah. then it just sort of skitters across the yeah. floor and you're like, phew, and you pick it up. It might be scratched uh-huh. or something, but it's you haven't okay. broke it. You're Scratch okay. you can take. You're okay. My my technique is to own a phone that will never break ever. Yeah, that brick is incredible, dude. <laughs> but you notice, I don't know if you've noticed that every time you put it in your back pocket, your pants come down. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Because we have. HR is called. You need a belt. It is about eight pounds. It's an eight-pound brick. It's an eight-pound phone. Yeah. Those were the days, man. Those brick phones. Do you know how cool you looked carrying your brick into work? No, not at all. So I I've cool. watched back episodes of Miami Vice. People yeah. didn't look cool using those no, phones. They, they tried did. really hard. Pastels, yeah. sports cars, uh-huh. and massive phones didn't work. You see, you know why they needed pastels is to take your eye off the phone. Apparently, it didn't work. Don't look at the phone. Don't look at the phone. As a kid, I'm like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm telling you, those were the coolest things you've ever seen. When I had my first brick phone, and mine was the next generation brick. So it was they had the beige-looking brick phone. It was huge. Mm-hmm. I think it's called the Brick S. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I, call, I think they called it the Briquette. The briquette. And it was a little it was a it was a narrower gray one. It's because the battery was better. Mm. Right. So but it was gray. Oh no games? Hot. No did, games. Did they have a calculator no, on there? It? But the game back then was did you have coverage? Yeah. That was the game. Does this work? This is yeah. so fun. Did, oh, no way, this is working. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Can you hear me? I can't believe that works. And you could only talk for really quick. Oh, I remember. Really fast because yeah. uh-huh. it was expensive. Yeah. yeah. Honey, I, I just got to tell you right now, I got a flat tire. I'm going to be home two hours later. It's got to go by because you didn't want it to go to two minutes or it'd be like an $80 call. Whereas my wife and I are like, so uh, what do you want for dinner? I'm like, I don't know. I don't what know. do you want for dinner? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we should eat out. The next thing I know, it's 20 minutes later and we both said, I don't know, about 20 times. <laughs> That's how it works. By the way, did you see this video of uh, that was released from Philadelphia, I believe? Was it from Philadelphia? Oh, no, no. It was from Seattle. Of the the guy that stops a, sh- a shooting on Pacific University's that was from campus, 2014. Yeah. yeah. Did you see that though? Yeah, he just they, tackles they the released guy. the video. Yeah. A hero, man. This guy goes out and attacks a guy, the gunman that's got a gun and a knife. There had to be a court order to get the video released. Why? 
I don't know. I was trying to figure out what was what was holding. You know, what's the do, do, are they? Is it because he did that, and they don't want to encourage people to go that to do that? I don't know. You, but I mean, you could get hurt, obviously. Totally. So. This guy, but he risked his life. One person had been shot already, and he and two others were injured. But this guy said, "I got to go do something, or he's going to keep shooting people." Right. What a stud. So um, we'll put that up on our uh, on our Twitter page at Doctor Matt Show. Also, I promised you um, a little uh, a little flashback. To the westerns. Deputies say a Florida hotel guest used a handgun to shoot the lock on his room door because he had locked himself out. According to deputies, when they arrived at the hotel, they located the suspect, 35 year old Charles Richardson, Richardson of Dunbar, West Virginia, sitting in the lobby unarmed. Deputies determined that Richardson, who was in the hotel, used a handgun to shoot the lock on his hotel room door, and uh, then he kind of just turned himself in. Deputies said Richardson then proceeded to shoot a glass window at the hotel for no apparent reason. This is going to make that Congress, that senator, keep filibustering. Yes, he'll go back to his filibuster. He, like, here's an example of somebody that needs to lose his gun. He's not quite using it right. Can you get another key at the reception desk? Yeah. Okay. Now, I get it if you're locked out and you're just in your towel mm. and you still have your sidearm. So you've done this before. Yeah. Isn't that... <laughs> you're, you're in a towel with your gun, your sidearm. Scampering down the hallway. I mean, you got a shower. I mean, I, what? You want me to just stand here naked? Yeah. What am I supposed to do? I had to take the door out. So, again, are you telling me that this guy can't now be taken off the gun list and have his guns removed? Not sure. I thought the music added a lot. Yeah, there's some depth there. Don't you think? I like that, yeah. The video. We just showed you that's a video. It was good. It's a oh. video of a guy shooting the door. Anyway, only here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the only place you get that depth of coverage of a man shooting his hotel door. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, Dr. Jeremy Sherman will be joining us as we talk about how not... Uh, to be fooled by jerks, and and also how not to become one. The art of jerkiness. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you have a friend who just can't seem to recognize that they're being duped? They don't realize that the door-to-door salesman has fooled them again or that the Facebook is never really going to give away free money just because you copy and pasted something into your status. But how can you recognize, you know, when you're being duped? And 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 why is it that some people are more likely to fall for it? And uh, some aren't. For that matter, what are, the, what are these people doing that are duping us? What are their tricks? What do they use in order to kind of trick us? Well, uh, we've got a great um, guest joining us. Dr. Jeremy Sherman is with us. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Sherman received his Ph.D. in decision theory. He has written over 475 articles for Psychology Today and um, is a founding member of an 18-year-old research project founded by Harvard and Berkeley biologist Terrence Deacon. Today he's here to talk to us about how not to be fooled by jerks, 
and not to become one, Dr. Jeremy Sherman. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for being here. This is uh, this is an interesting article, and um, I really I, I loved it. You've got to describe for us two things, okay? Or define, I guess we have to define our terms. Um, your article talks about uh, suckers and jerks. And, you know, for every jerk, there, I guess, needs to be a sucker. And for every sucker, there's a jerk. Explain what uh, your definitions of these. Okay. I'm probably using a, a pretty normal definition of both. And, but I am fascinated by how to define them. Um, uh, because we generally define them as anybody who disagrees with us. So if you disagree with me, then you're a sucker or you're a jerk. And I, I have been long interested in trying to find a more objective way to describe that, or else we end up with the world we have these days, which is lots of different factions that disagree with each other, and they're all confident that someone, that their opposition is jerks and suckers. Right. But I, yeah, so, so one way I framed it is, what is a butthead other than someone I butt heads with? Um, <laughs> It's a uh, – it's, it's true. It's almost like instinctively anybody that doesn't think like me, I might think, uh, meets the role of a sucker or a jerk, I guess. That's right, a sucker yeah. or a sucker or a jerk. And actually, in a way, the difference between them is just input and output. Uh, that is, if I'm taking in someone else's uh, uh, beliefs that uh, then I'm a sucker, but then if I espouse those beliefs, then I'm a jerk. I mean, there's one way to think about that. But, it, but I'm really basically working with the familiar definitions, but looking for a way to get beyond our subjective treatment of them. What really goes into being a sucker or a jerk um, that isn't about content? It's really about how you manage, how you think, how you shop among interpretations. It's not about what you think, but how you think. Huh. How you shop among interpretations, because there's many ways to see something or to be pitched something. And so this is really about how you evaluate the data. That's, a, that's right. It's, it, it, and interpretation is, uh, is really what it comes down to. We talk about reading situations. Well, when, when you think about reading, it's not a, a matter of automatically having a transfer of truths from one source to another, right. it's always got interpretation in there. It's open to interpretation. So it is largely about how we shop among interpretations. Hmm. That's and, a... That's a... And it, and, oh, go ahead. And it, mat- and it matters a lot. It's, it's some of the biggest shopping decisions we ever make. So I'm interested in it uh, for social welfare generally, you know, how to, how to make society work better. But I'm really mostly interested in it at a personal level. If you shop poorly among interpretations, you can end up wasting years of life and millions of dollars uh, in the long run because you've bought into something that doesn't actually serve you. So I'm really interested in this from a personal perspective as well. How to not be a sucker in our personal lives is where we get the most traction on this issue. No, it's so true. And um, I guess that's part of it is because, like you were saying, if somebody tells me something at my doorstep about what the bugs are going to do to my house. That's why I need to get pest control. Um, I guess I, I now have to interpret it. And you're saying I need to take probably a more active role in questioning the data and shopping my interpretation versus the data they're selling and, 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 and kind of measure this out so it's the best – it's betterment for me and my family. Yeah, that's a, that's a 
fairly straightforward case. I mean, that is one one can then get a second opinion from an uh, from another exterminator or something like that. But let's take a more personal and subjective version of it. Suppose you're in a relationship that isn't working for you. It could be a business relationship or a personal relationship, a romantic relationship, and it, it's you're feeling the urge to get out of it. But the other person calls you a quitter or uncaring or unloving yeah. for thinking about leaving. Well, you can end up spending decades of your life in a relationship that turns out not to be the best for you because you're persuaded by what turns out to be empty rhetoric. Let's take the, let's take the concept of uncaring. It's used as a pejorative. It's used as a negative. It means you're doing something wrong when someone accuses you of it. No one feels complimented when they're told that they're uncaring. So we know it's bad. What does it mean? It means you don't care about something. It implies a rule that one should always care about everything. Hmm. Well, you can't do that. Nobody does that. Right. So I'm even talking about at that level, that, that at, at that personal level, if you take that as evidence that you are wrong for not caring about this or that, whatever it is, it could be a person, it could be a cause, someone could call you uncaring for not making something a priority. We're all making things priorities, and that means we're also making other things not priorities. And if we, if we don't understand how that kind of rhetoric can move us, then we become suckers. Yeah. And and I guess and an an outsider would I guess see that move by your partner as them being a jerk. Um, uh, that's right, and you being a sucker. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and by the way, I'm not arguing that one should leave or not leave. Right, right. That's not the question. It's here. just their method. The it's their. Is, is it the method that they're using? Swayed. It's it's being swayed. One way I think about it is that we we have to shift between deciding and decided on lots of decisions throughout our lives. And um, often we are shoved over into a decided state by empty rhetoric, rhetoric that can't actually solve the problem, but makes us think that we don't have to think about it anymore. So I'm more interested in keeping alive the decision, the deciding long enough to make a sound decision, a practical decision from a personal, from, for, for you in that situation. And the rhetoric basically puts us to sleep. If someone says, well, you're uncaring, I, I can't leave this relationship because I wouldn't want to be uncaring, right. or I wouldn't want to be called a quitter. That has decided it. It basically smuggled a decision into a description. Someone thinks that they're just calling you a, uh, calling a spade a spade when they say, hey, look, you're just a quitter. You know, that's, that's what you are. No, it's not that simple. We all quit things. You can't live your entire life as though um, you never quit something. The question is what to quit. And you can't get to that question if you fall for the kind of empty rhetoric that says uh, quitting is always a bad thing to do. Yeah. You know what? You see this a lot, I guess, uh, don't you, in in the rhetoric of our, our of our politics, of our policymaking, even in the whole gun discussion now, it, it, a lot of stuff is being folded in. And like you said, decisions, it's our, our, our apparent decisions of what side we're on are all being smuggled just into the rhetoric or the description of the problem. What you want to kill yeah, people? I- you know what I mean? Yeah, we, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, it, so, yeah. So, I, 
a CPA considers uh, April 15th, the season, the month coming up to it, to be their season. This is my season. Yeah. Uh, politics is a fascinating time to be studying. Uh, it's a, a fascinating arena to be watching this occur in. And, and, and we're seeing um, extensions of the slippery, pseudo-profound rhetoric, the rhetoric that sounds fancy but isn't actually saying anything. Um, or is making a decision from with only a one-sided argument. So to take an old example, we were told that we couldn't leave uh, the Iraq war because it would be cutting and running. Well, that's just a direct parallel to what I was just talking about. Cutting and running is to reflect negatively on leaving something. Well, do you want to say that you've cut and run every time you leave everything you ever left? Yeah. You can't do that. Sometimes some of the decisions are good ones, some of them are bad ones. You don't want that rhetoric to decide it. And yet in politics, we use that to an extraordinary extent. And I guess, um, is it always, like you said, is, is it always just a really nicely packaged statement, like cut, cutting and running? You know, your your boots on the ground or whatever. So, I, I guess I guess it's really about the language that we're using. Is that is that language sculpted to to make this happen, or is it just evolving in our normal day to day conversations? Well, it, it it's a combination, and um, it's irresistible. If you're in a position of power and you need to justify um, to a receptive audience, a gullible audience, you can't help but use this stuff. So one of my fascinations is that rhetoric gets better and better over time. That is, if we find a new rhetorical trick by which to convince people of things, whether it be in a partnership or whether it be in politics at any level, in any arena, we don't forget that rhetoric. That is, it works for us, so we're not going to forget it. Yeah. And yet at the same time, a sucker is born every minute. That is, we are all born naive, so it's very hard for critical thinking skills to keep up with the quality of rhetoric that's available. And I do have hopes in this election that one of the, one of the, one of the effects, if we survive this election, <laughs> will be that we will have become more sophisticated in our shopping among interpretations. Yeah. Because uh. you, you need a whole lot of training in a whole lot of bad rhetoric before you start to see that it's bad rhetoric. And in a way, we get that over the years. For example, you look at an advertisement from the 1940s and you say, God, who would believe that stuff? Right. So we do become somewhat more sophisticated, but it's very hard to keep up. Well, and it sounds like, too, Dr. Sherman, we've got to be talking about it like we are in order to maybe point it out more. Um, Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jeremy Sherman, um, who is the author of the book Negotiate With Yourself and Win, Mind Minding for People Who Can Hear Themselves Think. Um, Wonderful insight there, plus 400-plus articles on Psychology Today. We'll come back, continue the discussion about how not to be fooled by jerks and how not to become one. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about how not to be fooled by jerks or to become one. And in order to do that, you got to sucker proof yourself. And there's certain conditions that our next guest or our current guest is uh, talking to us about. Dr. Jeremy Sherman joins us. 
He uh, has a Ph.D. in decision theory and has written over 475 articles for Psychology Today. One of them um, is this topic we're discussing right now. Plus, he also has a book uh, titled Negotiate With Yourself and Win, Mind Minding for People Who Can Hear Themselves Think. Dr. Jeremy Sherman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, and thank you for reminding me how prolific I've been lately. I'm up to 1,200 articles. Are you serious? Do you ever sleep? I I, I do, but I write pretty efficiently these days. Um, The ideas keep on coming. This is a wonderful wonderful topic. It It is. Because it just keeps on expanding and giving you all sorts of new angles on things. Well, and this is the perfect time to have you, you, because... You're, you can help us cut through a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing, and it seems like this election year is is almost the perfect laboratory for your um, the kind of decision-making theories. Um, talk to us about uh, – again, let me just kind of make sure I get this straight. Uh, part of this is about you need suckers who kind of fall for the jerky rhetoric, who like the packaging, right? That's right. That is, um, in, in politics, we talk about uh, dog whistles. Uh, that is um, a sound that resonates for some audiences and not others. Um, and I, and I want to set this straight up front. Though I am progressive in general in my own politics, yeah. I'm not really primarily concentrating here on the substance of the arguments. I'm interested in how they're made. Yeah, their method. And that is a... And that, and that is a key to becoming, to avoiding being a sucker. We generally think that messages that confirm what we already believe are true. It takes huge resistance to overcome that tendency in ourselves, the tendency to simply assume it's more, it's more true because we already believed it. Right. Um, so, so, so that's part of the training to, to, for critical thinking. Is that, uh, I think of this the, the work as learning how to spin how to unspin, and how to do both even-handedly. Hmm. How to spin is rhetoric. Uh, how to unspin is critical thinking. And doing both even-handedly means that I have to be as good at, uns- at, at spinning my opponent's argument, almost like a lawyer. Yeah. That is, I've got to be able to make my opponent's case as convincingly as possible, um, even though my tendency will be to make my own case as convincingly as possible, and I need to be able to unspin my own case um, as well as I can unspin my my opponents. Because what, what most people do with it when they learn rhetoric is they learn rhetoric and critical thinking is they use the critical thinking to attack their opponents, and they use the rhetoric to spin their own arguments. So wow. I'm really interested in how you do it even handedly. Yeah. And so, so one key, do, do you sense that um, as, a, as a population, I mean, we may lack a lot of critical thinking skills, don't you think? To actually to, to, to sort through and unspin this stuff. Yeah, and it's not just that we're not informed. It's that we're not motivated to, to, to learn critical thinking skills that we – because they're a little dangerous. Hmm. That is, they can undermine our own mojo. Yeah. I need a certain amount of – of, of uh, confidence that I'm right in order to get through my day, in order to stay focused on what I'm doing. And so I'm very unlikely to want to know how to dismantle my own sources of mojo. Huh, this sure. is why we end up with a country full of factions that are absolutely confident that they are 100% right and that the other side is suckers and fools. 
Mm. What about um, one of the things in your article you cite is part of this is just, I guess, education. And I'm not I, I guess you're not talking formal education, but people that are more apt or likely to buy into a, a jerk's argument would probably be somebody who's who's not as as educated or I guess is not either as isn't open to wanting this information because it'll impact our mojo, like you're saying, or isn't looking for other answers. Well, yes, and and I would argue that that's not just, that's not a rare pathology. I would say that that's fundamental to human nature. That is, we find what what feels like a groove to us, and then we want to stay in it. It's very disorienting to um, to, to to reopen questions, big questions or fundamental assumptions in our lives, and rethink them. It's very hard to do. It's it's costly. I do think that some of this does require formal education. We talk about how our education system is failing us, but really we have to prioritize an education, and the shopping among interpretations is the biggest priority, I think, for a capable society. It, 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 you just, that's that's got to be what education does more than anything else. Facts we can now get on the Internet intermingled with all sorts of nonsense, but of course you can get at facts if you want. How you shop among those facts for, how to, for what, to, what to invest in, that's really difficult work, and I do think it requires some formal education that, that doesn't get enough attention in schools because we mostly still focus on facts. Right, right. Give us the, um, you, you gave about, uh, I think it's four basic questions um, that help us to, to um, I guess, unsucker or sucker-proof ourselves, what, what, are, what are some of the things we can be doing to make sure we don't fall into the category of sucker? Uh, uh, so the first of them would be, can you state, if you hear something profound, sounding, because it uses, let's say, those dog whistle words, the words that evoke in you or stir you to enthusiasm and, 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 uh, and all that, can you state it in plain language? Um, I was talking to a friend yesterday, a libertarian friend yesterday, who told me that freedom unites. Um, okay, those are two <laughs> powerful-sounding words. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I was challenging him because I was saying, it's interesting, you, libertarians want to make a very big change in the country. Um, and, and to do that, to make a very big change, you have to unite. But at the same time, you're all advocates of anarchy and doing your own thing. So how are you going to deal with that? Well, he had this pat answer, freedom unites. Okay. Well, those are two simple enough words, uh-huh. but if you start to unpack it, you notice, wait a second, that's kind, of a, that's kind of an oxymoron. It's like saying, unite for autonomy. It's a strange thing to say. Yeah, and yeah. So there's a kind of a, kind of a so it's, it's about unpacking in that way. So now, here's, an, here's another one. Freedom unites, he, he says. Let's just take this as an example. Can you find an exception to that? If you, because generally what, what, what satisfies the sucker part of every one of our minds, the part that just goes by intuition and doesn't think about it, is a, is a sense that you have found a universal truth. Well, he was definitely saying it that way. Freedom right. unites always. Can you find an exception sure. to that? Sure. When you're you free. Find an exception. Yeah, you're free yeah. and you're starving to death and you no longer want freedom. You now want to eat. Right, that's right. Uh, that would be an example. But also, freedom, if, if you and I are free to choose to do whatever we want, chances are reasonably good, given just the statistics, 
that you will end up wanting to do something different from me. So, That's right. So how do you want you know, And it doesn't so, unite us anymore. Right, and also we can think of plenty of situations in which it's not the case. So the second so the first one is say it in plain language, that is strip it of its rhetoric. Uh, two is, can you find an exception? If you can find one exception, then it's apparently not this general universal sweeping formula that will solve all your problems all the time. Yeah. And yet, so, so this is basically an argument against what's called confirmation bias, the tendency for all of us to look for examples that support whatever we believe in, not look for exceptions. But if we really want, you know, it's solid understanding, better interpretations, we have to be very careful about what's a universal rule and what isn't a universal rule. Um, and a lot of stuff is touted as a universal rule when it can't possibly be. Right. In fact, um, and, and speaking it as a fact, oh, I guess that's another one of your points is, yeah, because you can speak so strongly, it sounds factual. That's why you're saying we've got to question using these questions, this data, this rhetoric. That's right. And actually, and rhetoric takes all sorts of forms. The general definition of it is basically mercenary uh, mercenary forms of persuasion. That is, they can be used in support of any cause. They are not uh, specific to your argument, but they're just kind of a, a general purpose way of tipping the scale, putting a thumb on the scale, either this, this, uh, discounting alternative perspectives or amplifying the power of, of, of a chosen perspective. That's what rhetoric does. Yeah. It's, it's kind of generic in that, in that sense. And that gets to the third point, which is, could your opposition use your argument against you? For example, we, we like to sound perseverance further, but we usually employ it when we're thinking about um, things that we would like to see more of. So imagine if ISIS claimed perseverance further. Uh-huh. We wouldn't be so happy with it then. <laughs> right. So it's a matter of basically turning the tables um, in order to see whether this thing is actually as true and valid and affirming as you think it is. If your opponent can use it against you, then it's not as true as all of that. Um, and, then the, and finally, the fourth one does get down to this basic point I was making earlier, which is uh, we often use loaded terms as if they're merely descriptive. So right. notice that I could, I could uh, if I don't, if I don't like what you, uh, uh, your commitments, I can call you stubborn. Mm-hmm. If I like your, if I like your uh, commitments, I can call you steadfast. What's the difference between them? A matter of opinion about whether it will turn out well. It's yeah. not at all, there's not a difference between them. It's not like a stubbornness and perseverance or, or steadfastness are apples and oranges. They're one and the same thing. The only difference is the loading. And so it's very useful to be able to strip the loading off of something. When someone calls you a quitter or someone calls you steadfast, those are in a way sort of opposites. Try to to strip that off. Translate from the positive to the negative, from the negative to the positive, so that you gain the power of neutral thinking. So you can shop among interpretations. I love it. Oh, that's such great advice. And and we're going to have to have you back, Jeremy, because this this is going to be a long season of politics. And I think yeah, just – but to have your tools, um, this is what makes us a critical thinker. But also, it, I mean, it can also help us be a motivator and somebody that can enroll people into our thinking. So I appreciate you being with us again, Dr. Jeremy Sherman. Um, go check out his book that uh, – is called Negotiate With Yourself and Win, 
mind-minding for people who can hear themselves think, and uh, maybe even more valuable as well, uh, was also 1,200-plus articles on Psychology Today. All you got to do is look up Jeremy Sherman and Psychology Today. You'll get to his page and start downloading and reading all of those. We appreciate you, Dr. Sherman. And for the rest of us, let's keep our minds uh, open. And let's question what we're hearing. Let's question uh, how we think. That way we don't have to fall into the sucker category. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How powerful is it to be able to look at your own thinking and uh, your own language? How many times have you sat there and had somebody selling you something and you thought, wow, I do need this magical berry? To, to change my life. You you weren't even thinking about, you know, buying a timeshare. It wasn't even on your mind. Yeah, that happened to me one time when this guy sold me some beans. He said yeah. they were magic. Yeah. But they never grew. Right. Yeah. And that's when you made bean salad. Three no. bean salad, five bean salad. No, they were rotten by the time I dug them back up. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, a sucker's born every day. Did you learn anything in our last segment? Um, I, I was kind of sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe listen up to this segment because maybe we can still teach you something. It's such a it's such a battle we all fight where we want to belong. We want to, you know, we appreciate the neighbors sharing what they are sharing with us because, you know, we don't want to be left out. Except sometimes we do. Do you have the ability to see through what others are doing. Do you have that insight? You don't – I think like uh, the good Dr. Sherman was saying earlier, we, we are all going to be a little naive. It's, it's part of humanity. But you don't have to be a whole lot naive. And if you've been kicked in the head before, you don't have to offer your head for more kicking. We can start to notice the trends, notice the, the words, notice the, the content – that people are sending us. And even as you listen to the political rhetoric, can can you find an exception to what Donald Trump is saying or to what Hillary Clinton is saying? Is there an exception to this? Um, can, can your opposition, for example, use the idea that they could build walls to keep Americans out? Yeah. If your opposition could use the exact same fact or point, then you're probably starting to just jump on the rhetoric bandwagon. I get it. It's exciting. It's powerful. It's, it's what you want to – you want to you know, be a part of a movement. You want to be a part of change. But just because it's stated strongly and factually doesn't mean it's actually factual. You can believe something – you know, very strongly. Think about it. When was the last time you actually totally believed something and then found out it not to be true? 
And it's hard because in order to do this, we have to open our minds up. And it's called critical thinking. And one of the things I think we battle as a country is we're, I don't know that we're really great yet at teaching people to be critical thinkers. Yet we live in an internet world where not being able to think critically could be to your detriment, right? Because otherwise you're just going to keep drawing back to the same well of information. And it doesn't make it one way right or wrong. It just makes it not complete. So one of the words that uh, I've been looking up and recently studying is a little bit about the word perfect or perfection, which um, I found to mean um, more than just that you are absolutely without flaw. It might also mean that you are just more complete, more whole. Whole means healthy. And a lot of our interpretations, as Dr. Sherman was talking about, most of our interpretations of other people, of other groups of people, of most of our prejudice, most of our assumptions and interpretations are not whole. They're not complete. For every uh, person, uh, Muslim, uh, you talk about in this world that is going to come in and try to kill us, I can show you a, a million exceptions. There are just as many exceptions to the rule as as you can find. So be careful. Look for whole answers, complete answers. Watch your bias and watch how strongly you argue something. Because um, many times, even though you feel you're completely right, you're going to find out you're not. There's still more you're missing. Let's open it up, broaden it up. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, hour number three of the show. Three hours of all the information, the tools, you name it. We've talked about it. Big oil suppressing research. We've talked about how to not become a jerk or a sucker. And now we will be talking about toxic relationships that are ruining your life and how to handle them. All as I stare in the eyes of Ben Wozniak. At work or in your day-to-day life. Exactly. Wait, why were you staring into my eyes? You were talking about toxic relationships? Yeah. Toxic people. Well, we, toxic. we both know I've never had a relationship, so... But you're very toxic. Great point. Yeah. So that was very self-aware. So I, I'd prefer if you just talked about how toxic I am and refrained from yeah, relationships. Yeah, I will totally do that. But today is a great day no matter what because it's fudge day. Mm. Fudge. Fudge day, uh, but because we care about you and your health, we want you to live longer and stronger. It's fresh veggies day as well. I'm going to be round my vegetables. I'm going to chop down my vegetables. Spinning the latest hits hmm. about vegetables. W- would you be in support of combining fudge and vegetables? Vegetables. Fudge- Love them. Fudgetables? I could eat a ton of vegetables if they were covered in fudge. Hmm. Hot fudge? Mmm. Mm. Ben, have you ever had Sounds hot fudge? Gross. I have. He's an ice cream maker. I was just asking. Like fudge-covered carrots? 
Yeah. Do you know that Ben one time put a tomato, which mm. isn't a vegetable. No. But he put a tomato on vanilla ice cream before with balsamic vinegar on it. It was actually pretty good. Sounds like my... he's just trying to figure out a way to charge you more for something. He did. Well, I... We put balsamic vinegar. That's 50 bucks. Thank you. Would you like balsamic high, vinegar on your ice cream? Very quality balsamic. We have Cristini's. No, but do you have any root beer? <laughs> I really want some root beer for my ice cream. Get out. I'd like it to float. Hey, it's also dump the pump day. Dump it, by the way. Mm. I forgot to get gas this morning. As did I. Did you? Make sure you get it on the way home. I have enough to get back. Dump the pump. Risk it. I'm yeah. going to risk it. I have about a 15-mile, a 15-gallon bumper. Or, uh, yeah. So I'll be okay. I'll be able to get there and run out as I roll into the gas station. I'll be on fumes. Why, why play it so close? Eh, why not? Live life. Living. You only live dangerously. Once. Oh, that's totally scary. Uh, hey, do you have a toxic relationship? A couple. Speaking of living dangerously, we are going to be talking about five ways toxic relationships are ruining your life and uh, what to do with the toxic people in your life. Like imagine just a bunch of sludge, chemical sludge, just mm. pouring onto you every day. Right. You know that that's bad, so we're, you're going to do something about it. Probably avoid it, yeah. Yeah, but what if that person works with you mm. and they're just spewing emotional sludge? And they're here like every morning. Every morning, like four minutes before the show starts. I just walk in and go, hey, guys, what's <laughs> and he, up? And he just looks at you and he's wearing shorts. Look at my new hoodie. Yeah. Hey, I got a hoodie. <laughs> I'm from the hood. I just came into this conversation. What are you guys talking Nothing. about? No, we were just talking about I love about how stuff. everything just turns into Ben. <laughs> if it's negative, we're like, oh, and then Ben walked in. If he were paying attention, it couldn't turn to him. But because he wasn't listening, we could right. just keep talking about him. Yeah. So we'll be getting into toxic relationships, de-wasdenizing. Mm. Okay, I got that one. <laughs> I've been using wasden as like a as a pejorative lately. Really? Like I walk by him and I'm like, wasden! And he's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. See, people think we're mean to Ben. His mother, mm. one aunt. I'm going to guess if we have brothers and sisters, they think it's pretty funny. They love it. I usually go by the brothers and sisters to see if we've gone too far. But remember, he doesn't have brothers and sisters because we found him in a dumpster. He lives with a mass group of people. Does he? There's quite a quite a, grund- a there's a grundle of people he lives with. A grundle. Yeah. That sounds like a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> How do a you guys grundle. know so much about my life? You talk about it occasionally. And we follow you. <laughs> You're under surveillance. It's okay. It's a fun thing we do. We also have got a bunch of headlines. Terry South, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. The Libertarian Party's presidential nominee, Gary Johnson, and his running mate, you know who that is? No. It's important. You need to know this. This, what's his name? Bill Weld. Weld. Yeah, he was the governor. No, that was Gary Johnson. Was Weld? I don't know. I think if, Weld was see, a I don't even know. governor. I don't know who this person is either. I think he so, was. I think that's kind of the good idea. And the reason why CNN is holding a town hall meeting next week with the libertarian candidates to introduce them to America. Yeah, because that's what they would normally do. Well, We've ignored them every other election cycle. Right. Like, please, come in and intervene. Now, of course, the reason being that this is the first chance in a long time that a libertarian candidate could make some waves. Mm-hmm. If and, they can get 15%... Of the vote, is if that they get fifteen percent of the vote, they can they can get into the debate. It says current polls have Clinton leading with a forty point seven percent support in a real clear politics polling average, followed by Trump at thirty six percent, Johnson, the Libertarian candidate, eight point five percent. Really, 
The third party duo appeared on stage to get on the, and as we talked about, to get on the stage at the presidential debate, they need 15%. A Fox News poll last week had the Libertarian candidate at 12% support. Wow. So we're close. Let's go, Libertarians. Get three this candidates is it. on now the stage. Now it's a three. Wouldn't that be great? A three party race. Now, if we just get the candidates to say things that, uh, you know. Yeah. Would now, be productive. Come on, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> All three. I don't know if he has. I, I've heard some things from the libertarian candidate, and you're like, why? No, 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 no. Don't, Slow don't keep talking about weed. What are you doing? He's always talking about weed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like know. me some weed. There's, no, no, Gary. It's the main, main platform issues. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about guns, Gary. We'll, we'll see what happens. Hillary Clinton's campaign isn't considering Democratic primary rival Senator Bernie Sanders as her running mate, but Senator Elizabeth Warren is being vetted, this according to the Wall Street Journal. Mm. They're citing people familiar with the process who refuse to give their name. Jerry, are you familiar with the process? I am so familiar with the process. <laughs> the winnowing, led by uh, uh, Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta, in, is in its early stages and using only publicly available information so far. They've Googled her, <laughs> and they're looking at it that way. Her hair looked really good in the 70s. She's 66. Yeah. Sanders, 74. Both represent the populist left faction of the Democratic Party. Sanders, for his part, isn't particularly interested in the job, nor is he expected to be offered it, though he doesn't mind being part of the conversation. Though he did bring 45% of the vote. Yeah. So instead, let's go to Warren, who wasn't even running. But she has been hitting Trump pretty hard on Twitter. Thumper, they call her. Yeah. Uh, presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump on Wednesday accused the Democratic National Committee of intentionally setting up a hack of its opposition research on him in order to distract from their party's presumptive nominee. We believe it was the DNC that did the hacking as a way to distract from the many issues facing their deeply flawed candidate and failed party leader, Trump said in a statement. Too bad the DNC doesn't crack crooked Hillary's 33,000 missing emails. On Tuesday, it was revealed that Russian hackers stole the DNC's opposition research on Trump. The alleged document containing the research was leaked by Gawker on Wednesday. So it's a 150-page go- dossier with everything you could find on Google, basically. I don't think there was anything new. Probably not. Because if there were new things, you'd be hearing about that all day today. Yeah. And everyone, I guess, Gawker put the document on, on, yeah. online. People looked at it and nothing came out of it. Over a week ago, a Massachusetts woman turned to Facebook to ask for birthday cards for her soon-to-be 19-year-old cousin who has autism. Hmm. On Monday, delivery trucks brought in more than 5,000 cards for the young woman, adding to the haul that had already been delivered every day since Friday. Hallie Sorensen of Bangor, Maine, was stood up by her friends at her bowling alley birthday party last year. Her cousin, Rebecca Lynn, posted a photo of Sorensen sitting alone at a balloon-decorated table. The Facebook post received over 236,000 views, and uh, Allison Sorensen, Hallie's mom, told the Bangor Daily News that they've received more than 6,000 cards and the family's garage is packed. That is huge. That's cool. Uh, I would like... Anybody that wants to send, you know, um, money gift cards with money on them. Okay. For what? Ben. For Ben? Yeah. Who? Be sure to write the checks. No checks. No, 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 no. No You you have to do this carefully. Just because you want. (laughs) There might be a law or two that we're skirting. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know if you can do this. Yeah, we better not. <laughs> Darn it, Ben. We almost could have put you into school and got you some new clothes. It's okay. Maybe next year. <laughs> I'll just walk barefoot for the next year. I did have a story for you really what? quick. What? There's a website called Bumble. It's a dating app. It oh, lets listen, w- Ben. It lets women make the first move. Right? Yeah. Spotify, they've partnered with them to make it more an, an, an informed dating decision. So you make your, your choice on who you want to date, and, and part of the decision you can look at what songs do they listen to on Spotify. Oh, belief. So you look at their music choices, their preferences, their – do they like this band? Do they not like this band? Do they, what do they just listen to? Do they yeah. just listen to Carly Rae Jepsen for 50 hours? Call me maybe. Really? I'm going to have to let you go. Do you think musical choice, musical preference is something you should consider – if you're trying, you're looking to see if you want to date someone. Uh, yes, in the easily in the top 75 things you should worry about. <laughs> but not the top no. five. No. Okay. No way. You love Beyonce? So do I. <laughs> Let's go out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's, there's, yeah. I, I mean, it's great to have something like that in common. It's a conversation thing. You yeah. can talk with people hey, about their music. Yeah. and yeah, but people they're 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 trying to make people look at it and go, no, I don't like them because they don't like they like this band or they don't like this band. And we or, talked about this. So this all this does is it just gets you another thing that can be like a supposed answer. Yeah, but you're still going to be single in ten years if you're basing it on <laughs> music. You know what the number one way to to know who to marry? What's that? Date. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> like date, get out. Well, I'm mad. I never get to date. Well, I don't know. Are you on a site where it's all about Spotify? It's not no. about music. At some point, you got to date, and once you're dating or meeting people, you got to be. You're going to marry. Your, my grandma taught me this. You marry who you who you date. Don't worry. Well, that 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 story resonated because yesterday we had the uh, the woman on talking about dating and the idea that they're teaching women to kind of lean in, yeah. try to get promoted, Business, try to yeah. become part of the conversation. And except when you go to a relationship and you're supposed to sit back and let yeah, the guy sit lead. Sit back. Don't be aggressive. Let the so guy now we have a, a dating app that the woman goes first, mm-hmm. but uh, she's judging off your music preference. She also talked about these sites. A lot of these sites aren't really designed to get you to get married because if you got married they'd lose their audience so instead they might just get you to spend time thinking you're valuably you know moving on and getting progress but you're not so no no not that music's bad love music i love spotify use it as a conversation but not as a judgment you know what when i would use spotify is when you're on a date (laughs) when you're dating somebody you put on your spotify and you just woo her with love tunes why are you looking at me i just because how many times have i told you to date you never date I sound like a father. That's awesome. Settle down, Dad. Okay, go ahead. Hey, here's uh, here's two things we got to get to. Um, <laughs> did you hear about this uh, mortuary or a funeral home? This is crazy. This is a funeral home, kind of. I think being a little cheeky, but they're trying to advertise and at the same time do a public service announcement. So they're advertising Walthen Funeral Home. Um, but simultaneously, they're doing a public service announcement about how you shouldn't, how you should text and drive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's a dark advertisement for a funeral home. So instead of telling you not to text and drive, they're yeah. encouraging you to text and drive. Yeah. yeah. If you're here at the funeral home, you've probably seen our text and drive billboard. 
And if you have, you probably came to this website to tell us what horrible people we are for running the ad, and you'd be right. It's a horrible thing for a funeral home to do. This is all on their site. But we're not a funeral home. We're just trying to get Canadians to stop texting and driving. So they're drawing them in yeah. with a really morbid, like, pitch. Well, and then you just get people coming to your website that are angry. Yeah. And then they then they become more angry because there's some sort of trick involved. Right. And so you don't really benefit from it. You just make people angry. Right. And so now, so is, is it, it's negative advertising. Yeah. By the way, uh, a lot of them, though, are now picking up on this. Mm. Um, the Army Surplus Store is now having the Catch the Grenade contest. Okay. <laughs> which uh, is, is yeah. really popular. That's beneficial. Like and that. again, they're, they're partnering with Waltham Funeral Home. Also, emergency rooms hmm. are really big into, sure, drink the poison. It's not, it's not Clorox. Ben, you got something to say? You're looking like you're chomping at the bit. I, I was really good at the Drink the Drainix competition. Do you remember that? Competition, yeah. yeah, Drano. Yeah. Drink the Drano contest. Yeah. We call it the, Dr- the Drano drink off. Yeah. It's not good. With off, with like a devilish. <laughs> yeah. yeah I got bad. three shots before yeah. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Became violently ill. By the yes. way, the national parks are also partnering with Walton. Okay. Uh, they're doing a, feed they're, the bears. They're doing a thing called yeah, how uh, to hand feed a bear. That's good. It's super fun. Yay! Here, bear. Here, bear. Hey, uh, did you hear this one? This one drives me crazy. Average person can only fully relax for thirty-six minutes a day. Hmm. Crazy study. The average person is only able to fully relax 36 minutes a day, just three hours across the working week, new research has revealed. A study into working patterns and downtime of 2,000 people found seven in 10 feel overworked. Yeah. With work, stress, and too few proper breaks, the leading cause of a lack of me time is, you know, because we can't, we can't relax. So let me, we, we've put together a list and a video. This is one of our video segments where we have examples of things that can help us go to sleep or relax. Okay. Okay, 36 minutes. Well, don't pressure me. Okay. Uh, first thing you can do, and tell me this doesn't relax you, just mm. counting sheep. Just count them. There's one. No, no. Two. Three. Hold on. Was that the one I counted first? Well, there's a new one. Four. Or is it three? No, that's five now. Now we're stressed. Ah. Okay, 24 minutes. Another one of my favorite ways to relax is um, I just drink a glass of warm milk. Okay. You know what I mean? Are you just trying to take a nap? Yeah. Well, just... it just are all sleep aids. It's just... So like really warm milk. This is Ben. This is Ben <laughs> milking a cow. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, I guess if I can't right. stand warm milk, always, always, always strain your warm milk. Yes, please. If it's right from the cow. Yeah. And pasteurize it. If Be you careful. Uh, and finally, my favorite of all is Yanni. I just put on a little Yanni. Yeah, there's limits to this. What do you mean? Yanni. That's where I draw my line. No, but if you. Have you ever listened to Yanni at the Acropolis? Matt, five minutes. Quit bringing up the time. You're stressing me out. (sighs) Whatever. It's a lot of pressure. 36 minutes a day, folks. I think we're going to die. That's why we do the show. Nothing more relaxing than this show. So sit back and relax. Three hours of just relaxing sensation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back talking about toxic people, how to detoxify the relationship. Stick with us, helping you love stronger. Up next.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Hey, uh, what do you think? You ever have anybody in your life that's a little toxic for you? We all know that if you get close to toxic chemicals, they can burn you. You could eventually, with some chemicals, maybe even become addicted. If they don't kill you, right? They can distort you. They can do all these different things to you. But the same goes for our relationships. If we have a toxic relationship, they're harmful. Sometimes, though, they can also burn you out. But you can become attached or addicted to sometimes to some of these. And they can even cause physical stress and headaches. So joining us today is a coach and best-selling author of Listen, Learn, Love, How to Dramatically Improve Your Relationships in 30 Days or Less. Susie Miller joins us. Uh, you can also go to her website, susiemiller.com. Susie, welcome to the show, and thanks for being with us. Well, hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about my favorite subject, relationships. This is great stuff. I love relationships, and the thing about it is a toxic relationship I mean, it sounds so negative, but we all have people in our lives that, that really are, are emotionally difficult, right? We do. We do. And what's interesting is, for me, who I'm such a positive, uh, possibility-oriented person, I actually call myself a possibilitarian, to really look at toxic relationships is important to be able to have actually good relationships with yourself, with others, and with God. So it kind of came around where I began realizing that toxic relationships could be one of the main things that keeps you from enjoying your life and enjoying good relationships. Right. Why, why, is, it, um, why is it so hard for us to pull away from the toxic relationship if they, if they are so harmful? You know, because usually there are people close to us and there's an emotional attachment of some sort. For example, I know I talk a lot about the, the suitcase of guilt that, you know, mothers or mother-in-laws pack and send off with their kids when they go to school. And, you know, my kids are grown. They're 30, 28, and 26. And I know they would say, oh, yeah, that's that mom guilt sometimes. And, you know, so I say this from the front end to let people know that just because you might exhibit some of the behaviors that might feel like um, they could, you know, be on the spectrum of toxic, it doesn't mean you're toxic. So I think a lot of times we are enmeshed and in, in, in intertwined with people. And so we're not sure how to either pull away and create healthy boundaries because they could be family members um, or they are people who are in our life for business. We work with them and so you can't quit your job. So I think identifying toxic relationships and really being able to navigate them and protect yourself in them is you know, one of the best things you can do if you can't leave them. A friendship you might be able to leave right. more easily. Right. And I mean, and this gets even more complicated, too, when that person's your child, when that or that person is, is in an addiction or for some other reason, they've become toxic. And then you real then it becomes even harder, right? Right, right. So a toxic relationship that consumes your energy is one where you're kind of in that marathon of effort. All of your work, all of your energy, all of your effort is going towards making sure the other person is either okay or happy or sober in some way. And, you know, I say that sober, we're all, you know, addictions can be, you know, to chemicals and, and alcohol, but they could also be to workaholism. I call it churchaholism, you know, any aholism, sure. alcoholism. And so whenever our energy is geared so much toward another person that we think their well-being depends on us, that is not only codependent, but it can become toxic because you're always kind of on hypervigilant mode. You're scanning, and that's exhausting. And so, yes, when that's a child, I teach a lot of my clients that they need to draw some boundaries, and they don't feel good, and they hurt the parent as much as they hurt the kid. Yeah, boundaries are I – mean, but, but again, you need the boundaries to, to, to live, right, to stay Absolutely. alive and healthy. 
Absolutely. Let me go back to the one I talked about, like the guilt inducer. And I I really, as I um, thought about our interview today, um, I wanted to make it really clear that you may be exhibiting some of the behavior that we're going to talk about today, but it doesn't mean that you're toxic or you're in a toxic relationship because it has to be the bottom line. So like a controlling or guilt-inducing mother, I'm going to kind of tell myself a little bit here, um, that could be, you know, really oppressive, or it could be the fact that every teenager thinks their parents are controlling because they're not letting them do whatever they want. Right. And so you have to put yourself on the spectrum as you're evaluating your relationships of is this just a behavior I need to deal with or is this toxicity the bottom line? If, it, if they can't, if they're not in control, then the relationship is over or ruined or devastated. If, you know, the bottom line is I need to make sure my, you know, son or daughter or husband stays sober, that's a bottom line versus a behavior. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, Matt? totally. And, yeah, and you don't want, because it would be easy, it would be easy to just either brush all of this off like that's not me or I don't need that or it would be easy for some to beat themselves up about this. Absolutely. And that won't that won't help you fix it necessarily, right? Oh, no, I think that would make it worse. Right. I think that um, I believe all growth begins with awareness. And so whenever I start talking about hard things, like, people can kind of see themselves. It's almost like, oh, my gosh, am I getting this germ because I was in the airport um, <laughs> and I heard people coughing. So you can really easily, as you said, think this is me or this is everybody in my life. And so I want people to step back and go, all right, what's the bottom line? You know, one of the things I've, I talk a lot about at work is you can have people in business who might, you know, they make those comments. They're kind of the belittling comments. They're the, well, you know, you know, Bobby, he never finishes work on time. Or, and they could have a little truth in them, but they're said in a really negative, cutting way, usually in front of other people that really destroy your self-esteem and self-confidence. Well, it's not like you can quit your job, but you can take that comment and reframe it and have some conclusions that you live from. For example, let's say this was Larry who said this about Bobby every time. You know, Larry comes and says these things because Larry's insecure or Larry's trying to belittle me. I'm going to put them in the kind of recycling you know, trash can and not let them impact me because I really can't quit my job. Right. So I think there's that aspect of managing or navigating you know, toxic relationships. I think a lot of uh, clients I've worked with, a lot of trainings I've done for corporations, they talk about toxic bosses. Mm. You know, they're never happy. Well, you can't look at your boss and go, stop being toxic. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to work. You are being naughty. <laughs> yeah, you can't. It's not like, it's not, it's not something you can control as fully, but you, I guess you also ought to make sure you recognize that it's toxic, right? And, agree. And, and it's going to have a consequence on you. One of, one of your five, um, ways that that toxicity kind of ruins your life is it impacts your self-esteem, your self-confidence. Right. It really does. And I think this is the first place. It's almost like I think about kind of being in poisonous gas. You don't really realize it when it first comes into your, like, system, if you think about it physically. Like, we're very aware of green stickers being on chemicals our kiddos shouldn't, you know, ingest, or we can we have radon meters in our home, or we can smell gas on the stove when it gets to a certain level. By then, it's already causing trouble. And so when you have toxic people, you have to have what I call, like, this imaginary green sticker where you first become aware whenever I'm around this person, I feel belittled. Mm. I find myself um, feeling you know, defensive in a personally attacked way. And so I think everything begins with awareness. So yeah. now I'm aware that I don't really enjoy my interactions with them. I leave feeling worse about me. And then you kind of acknowledge, well, what's that about? Is, is it that I have some self-growth to do? 
or is it that they are really poking holes in what might be a healthy self-esteem? Yeah, interesting. And, you know, when people um, hit us physically, we do feel the impact. Let's say if you use that. And so you might just rear back like a boxer and then kind of lean forward again. Well, emotionally or verbally, you have the same impact. And so you have to acknowledge, hey, that happened, and that wasn't about me. And then the third A would be action. So now what's the action I want to take? Well, I'm going to have as little interaction with this person as possible. Or I'm going to remember when they come at me that they're kind of wearing that green Mr. Yuck sticker, and I'm going to, you know, take my, you know, personal self and tuck it away and be very professional and kind of removed Mm. so that I'm not going to take on their poisonous gas. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it really is. It's, a, it's, it's an empowering mindset to sit there and, and recognize it, use the emotion to recognize it, and then build a plan like you're showing us. Let's take a break. More with Susie Miller and, uh, and five ways uh, toxic relationships are ruining your life and really what you can do about it. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you love longer and uh, live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, Toxic Relationships. You know, they're there, and you know you can't always just abandon them, right? you got to learn how to negotiate and manage, work your way uh, through some of these relationships. If it's your boss, you can't just run. If it's a child that uh, is toxic for you, you can't always just abandon them and kick them out. At some point, you got to learn to... Um, to, to recognize the toxicity and figure out some methods, some tools to help you with that. Uh, we've, we've asked our guest to join us. Susie Miller is here, and she is um, the author of the best-selling book, um, Learn, or Listen, Learn, Love, How to Dramatically Improve Your Relationships in 30 Days or Less. And uh, we're covering her article, Five Ways Toxic Relationships Are Ruining Your Life. Susie, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Good to be back. Great to have you. Talk to me um, more about what are some other things we need to know about the toxic relationship. I mean, it does impact our self-esteem and our confidence, but it also, I found, and you've talked about it in your article, it does consume your energy. You really, these people sap you. They really do. I think there's that idea of we all have energy that we put out and we take in. And it is a, you know, kind of fluid field, no matter what your belief are, you know, beliefs are, science shows that. And so there's this idea of when you spend time with people, you know, when you go to something and your people are excited and they're, you know, positive or it's, you know, we're watching the um, Copa America soccer here and, you know, your team wins. There's this energy and excitement and you feel better and you, you know, you leave in a gathering and you're like, I can do it. Or, you know, you feel just positive about things. When you're around negative or even just something as simple as your team loses, you're like, oh, bummer. And so if you think about that very simple, you know, picture, mind picture, and you take that over to relationships, there's people that you're with. And when you leave them, you just have a more hopeful countenance. You're more positive about the world. You kind of like yourself better. Right. And you like them better. It's a good interaction. It's a kind of emotional deposits that are positive. When you're with people who are toxic, it is a very draining and exhausting and kind of 
what I talk about, it's this mind gymnastics, these mental gymnastics of trying to figure out what's going on, how to make things better. You're always on, and you, you kind of get consumed. I had a client um, a couple years back who was very toxic, and they realized this into our work and thought, you know, I'm spending a lot of time off hours thinking about how to help or how to work or how to protect myself. And in those moments, I had to pause and go, is this a good and wise investment of my time and energy? Mm. And so I think, especially at work, when you're, you know, consuming your energy, you've got to be able to say, hmm, you know, you all have those people. Every time we talk, it's all about them. Yeah. How are you? Let me tell you about me. You know, they, you know, they open with the question, how, how was your weekend? And you go, oh, good. And they go, mine too. And it blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. You know, you, but that, that's funny. And you, you can't just shut your door. Like, again, at work, there's sometimes you can't leave them. But I guess the key is, is to notice you're being sapped, right? Because if I am, I, if I'm tired and exhausted, then I'll have less reserves and energy to get rid of this person or to get, or to handle their impact on me. It's almost like I have to anticipate, uh, how to handle them, right? I can't just react to it. Yes, and I think that goes back to what I call my three A's. Once you're aware that this person becomes, you know, the energy sapper, and you acknowledge, okay, this isn't because they're in a crisis, this isn't a special instance where they are more needy. We all have times in our lives when we, you know, we require more of people um, versus an ongoing crisis-aholic. Then you can say, all right, I've now labeled, you know, and and identified this person as somebody who I'm really going to leave feeling exhausted. So my action is to when I hear them coming in to kind of, you know, you know, put on, you know, like the old cold gate shield or, you know, this idea of the armor of God, the idea of I've got to have something that's a barrier. Otherwise, the gas that they're pulling off, the energy they're trying to suck from me, is just going to flow out of me. And you do, you get caught yeah. being exhausted. And so then you become reactive. And so, again, having a plan is always a better way. But even if you're three quarters into the conversation and you remember your plan, yeah. like, oh, wait, I'm going to make a shift here. And so I think you used the word empowering earlier. Yep. I think it really is very empowering when you can categorize, and I don't mean label in a bad way, I want to be real careful here, because we all, you know, have, you know, times when we're needy or controlling or demanding or critical, you're negative, but it's that constancy where you always leave them exhausted, you always leave them feeling, you know, worse, and so I want to make that distinction. Yeah, no, that's huge. We have about a minute left. What would you say is, if there's one thing that I could do today that would make the biggest impact on on managing the toxicity with others and and their impact on me what 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 is the one thing that that tends to pay the biggest dividend i think to be aware that i say this in my book relationships are the currency of today so you're trading in relationships and they are they are the most valuable asset you have so be aware on a daily hourly basis of how you feel being with a person, and if you begin to realize that they fall into this category, to then take some action to draw some boundaries and barriers around them. So again, I think, not to make it too simplistic, Matt, but everything starts awareness. So right. suddenly you're, you're able to say, here's what I think is going on, and then what do I want to do about it? That's great. And again, um, Susie, they can find out more about what you're doing just by going to susiemiller.com. They can. There's lots of resources there. My podcast, the People Skills Lab resources, and there's all a fun ten days to better communication with everyone every time. Free course. Good stuff, Susie. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back. Got to find more uh, ways to deal with the toxicity in our lives. Susie Miller. Um, we're going to take a break, folks. Come back, visit our good buddies up at BYU or down at BYU Sports Nation. See what's going on in their world and what will be coming up on their show. At the top of the hour, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little Rutabaga song for you. What better music could we ever have to send it down to our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation? We know they love their vegetables, so we're going to shoot it down to, I think it's Brian today. Is, is it Brian? It's Brian and Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Good, guys. How are you two? We're doing very well on this gorgeous Thursday morning. It's gorgeous. Do you guys know that today happens to be Fresh Veggies Day? I did not know that. That's why we were singing the Rutabaga song. Okay. All right. Also, Veggie Tales too. Yeah. Ooh, we've been watching Veggie Tales all morning. (laughs) We cannot get enough of the Veggie Tales. It's also, by the way, Fudge Day. So we'd like to give you a choice. Would you like fudge or fresh veggies? Matt, I think you know the answer to that question. Fudge it is. Yes. We will will send down some fudge for you. Hey, um, it's also Dump the Pump Day. I don't like dark fudge. I like dark chocolate. It's just more. Do you you like dark chocolate? I like milk. I don't like dark. You know what? You know what, Brian? We don't see color up here. Mm, I'm I'm happy because I don't see any color in Utah either. <laughs> True dat. Oh, man. That is awesome. That's a good one. Huh? Hey, you guys, where are where are the grown-ups? Um, on vacation. Yeah, they're just taking a, a much uh, needed uh, me day. we so Spencer usually goes somewhere when he when he's not on the show. Jerem just you know really yeah. You know, just, yeah, just I don't know <laughs> where they are. I, I just I know you know it's it's summertime and you you accumulate you know vacation and this is just kind of the time where it's a little slower where you take them. Somebody told us that they saw Jerem at Seven Eleven, just today, hanging out today. Yeah, that's like panhandling, right? eating a taquito, and just <laughs> standing at the front door of a Seven <laughs> Eleven. I don't know. That's I a mean, good vacation. I mean, yeah. but he he did have his child. And uh, oh, they, yeah. they just said they were going to hang out there all day. Yep. Hey, but let's be honest. A place with Slurpees is not a bad place to hang out. Not a bad oh, place yeah. at all. Especially, yeah, get a donut, you know, for lunch, hang out. Yeah. Life is good. Hey, are you guys going to be watching Game 6 today? Absolutely. I'm not sure yet. I'm trying to figure really? out. Really? Brian? Well, my, my son, um, my six, this is funny, I always say my six-month-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Your half-year-old. <laughs> um, he's taking pictures, so... I don't know where or like Is he a where. photographer? No, we're just getting his six month <laughs> six month pictures done. Uh, oh that's cool. So, that's cute. Yeah, I don't know where it's at. Yeah, but here's like the playing. deal. All of the NBA finals games are on the watch ESPN app. Mm-hmm. Oh okay. You know what? I don't have that app, but I'll get it now. And I have like free I have free Wi Fi or internet now. Wow. It's all digital these days, yeah. Brian. I know. Two thousand sixteen. Hold on, is this all on the interweb? It is yes. on the intro web, I believe. <laughs> Is it they, is it going to make a difference? Draymond Green's going to be playing. He basically said <laughs> if he had been playing last time, last week, last game, they would have won. Draymond's in, but uh, Andrew Bogut's out. Is what's your prediction? Do you know who is a really big fan of Draymond Green? Who? Draymond Green. <laughs> Draymond <laughs> loves Draymond. You know what? I mean, it's he's he's the third best player on their team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean, yeah, it's going to help. I mean, the, the loss of Andrew Bogut is big, but it, it's it's not like losing Draymond Green. Now, the, the thing is, this obviously is in Cleveland, yeah. And the Cavs are feeling really good after getting mm-hmm. forty one from LeBron and forty one from Kyrie and going home. Um, yeah, this this is going to be this is going to be a great game. I, I'm really looking forward to this, and I will be watching for sure. I kind of hope that um, they win. Uh, the Warriors win. So I'm I'm from the Bay Area. 
Uh, I grew up I grew up yeah. a Bears fan, so I'm not like a like ba- jumping on the bad wagon or anything. But obviously, rooting for the hometown team uh, makes sense. But I'm just a little bit nervous of the victory and, and the celebration is what would happen. Oh, that yeah, that will get crazy in the city of Oakland. If it, so. if it goes to Game Seven and they win there, or you just mean in yeah, general? Yeah, 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 yeah. If no, if they win in Oakland, yeah, that's that's a little bit. Scary. Well, that's hard. Yeah, that's your hometown. That's uh, not, I'm not, Oakland isn't, but, what, uh, but that I area. Some cousins that are from Oakland, so I no. Yeah. See, that's something I've never had to worry about. Yeah. Living here in Utah, <laughs> we don't have to worry That's about I'm not, I'm rioting never, after championships. I'm never going anywhere, right? It's like yeah. why, I can see you riding after a loss, but why would you ride after a win? You I know just you want won. an excuse to riot. That's right, but who doesn't love a good riot? But here's the deal: if I'm going to riot, I'm going to go to someone else's city and do it. That's right. Yeah. I'm going to go to Cleveland and riot. Like I don't want to do. I don't want to do that in my city. Yeah. I got to live there. I don't understand. That's don't true. Understand. People. Like, why would you want to burn, like, blow up a car in front of your house? Like, it just doesn't make sense. It's, so it, sit there for seriously. Day, Take days. it to your neighbor's house, <laughs> then blow it up. <laughs> it's good. It really is. It's it's right uh, two feet. <laughs> to get to your neighbor's. <laughs> Excuse me. Is this your car? No, it's not. Boom. Hey, um, this is, you know, we've had, a, we've had a big day today, and I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you guys re- heard us, because I know you, when you're getting ready and you're doing your makeup and they're waxing you guys, I know that you guys are listening to our That's show. David Nixon. Yeah. Did, did you guys know that um, you only, the average person can only fully relax 36 minutes a day? Why? That seems like a lot, in all honesty. Does it? seem sleeping. Yeah, well, Jason, do you how much how much time do you? I am spend I am relaxing? in a constant ball of nerves. Yeah, me too. That, that's just me. Yeah, you're wound tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that why you twitch? <laughs> I, I didn't know that I twitch. No, they call you Twitch up here. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize I had a nickname like that. Yeah, in fact, I'm like his name is Jason. They're like, oh, I mean, Twitchy. Matthew, you can't tell people's <laughs> nicknames. Oh, sorry. So, so 36 minutes a day is all. 36 minutes is all you get to relax. What about sleeping, though? Like, but what do they consider yeah. relax? Yeah. Well, when you're not twitching. <laughs> so it's the non-twitching moments? Yeah, I think it's waking moments, but able to just kind of unwind and feel uh, like you're not overworked, not feeling stressed, and, and being able to just be calm. I think um, I have more than 36 minutes of that. Do you? Simply because my brain goes blank a number of different times throughout the day. So. See, and the reason I don't have 36 minutes is I am such a sports guy. I am always watching sports. Are you really? And so just the 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 nervousness of watching my team, you know, are they going to win and are they going to blow this lead? I, I just you get that I just can rush, never relax cuz I'm watching yeah. sports all the time. Let me yeah, let me let me just do this. Let me play this sound for you and just tell me if when you when you when you hear this sound, and if you want, you can count them. You'll, you'll hear certain sounds. You can count them if you want, because supposedly that helps a lot of people just relax. One, two, three. Did that help? No, that's that last one sounded like some guy in the background. It was just really angry. Yeah, it that was Jerem. It actually did help. <laughs> that it was Jerem. Helped me. I closed my eyes the last, on on two and a half. I closed my eyes and I just really did it help. I really felt yeah. I, immediately when I first heard the sound, it, it, I felt like five pounds lighter because the stress. See, just L- let me give you one more. Let me give you another one. Let me close my eyes. Go ahead, Brian. This may be the one that pushes you all over the edge because right. this is. I know Brian. You're big into show tunes. I know that. And so, what are show tunes? Oh, you'll hear. Um, and so this is what Jerem told us he likes to do to relax. 
Two, four, six, oh, one. <laughs> no, that messed me up. Oh, was that eyes. Jerem? That was Jerem. <laughs> <laughs> Singing Lay Miss. Uh, <sighs> isn't it comfy? Not that last I'm going to be honest with you. I would listen to that more than I would listen to the uh, the sheep. Would you really? Those sheep specifically. Give me the sheep, man. Give yeah. me the sheep. Hold on. What did you just say, Bri? Give me a sheep? No. Or give me death? I said give me the, give me the sheep. <laughs> You'd rather want, count sheep. I get it. I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want a sheep like a, as a pet. No. That'd be kind of weird. Sheep make horrible pets. Yep. They're I horrible pets. Yeah, I, I mean, like a cow, that's totally different. A bison? Uh, how about like this? W- wouldn't you love to just wake up after a nap with this sound? This is a guy milking a cow. <laughs> nope, nope. How about some warm milk? Does warm milk help? Nope, nope. If I just got you a fresh cup of warm milk right from that cow. No, thank would, you. Would that help you relax? I'm actually, I'm actually lactose, so. Oh, I'm okay. staying away from like, right. the, the, the animals, the farm animal. I'm just staying away from that. Guys, I'm trying to help you, but apparently it, none of it helps except just, for Jerem's voice. Apparently I need Jerem singing show tunes. Yeah, you do need Jerem singing. Two, four, six, so one! Of comfort and <laughs> serenity, if you will. Oh, that's just, sick. Just, just, I went with Lloyd Braun in, in Serenity Now. Oh, okay. wow. Uh I don't really need hey. any any of those things. Just just give me Jesus and I'll be good. There you go. See, Brian, you always bring it back to faith. Got you. Got you. Beautiful. What's on the show today? I got to let you guys go. Yeah, we've got uh, we got a, a really nice show today. Uh, guess wise, we're going to have BYU baseball's Colton Shaver. He's going to join us. He's playing in the Cape Cod League, Sweet. a very exclusive baseball summer league. So we will talk with Colton Shaver of BYU baseball. We'll also talk some BYU basketball with Terry Nashif, assistant coach for the Cougars. Plus, we're going to talk a little expectations. Expectations for what, you ask? I knew you were asking that what, question. What was that? What am I asking? I asked What that. are your expectations for Taysom Hill this season Ooh. as he recovers from yeah. Liz Frank? Not somebody named Liz Frank. Yeah, That's I've never met Liz. <laughs> what did Liz do to her? I know. I, what, and I'll be honest with you. Liz is not a very nice lady. Now, Liz seems like she just tears it up. <laughs> so that's what we got today. That's a great show. And Big Deal, No Deal, which is always fun. Big Deal, No Deal. And the parents are away so the kids can play. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, guys, have a great show. Yeah. Thanks. Kid, Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I might be a little reckless. And no. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll expect that fudge uh, yeah. when we get off the air at yep. 11. I'll yes. send my fudge guy down. Yes, Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. See ya. That's fun. See, they want the fudge. Nobody wants the veggie day. I don't know why veggies get such a bad rap. Hey, in the Coach a Con segment of the show. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? In uh, Palm Bay, Florida, believe it or not, this uh, Coaching the Con is out of Florida. Palm Bay, Florida, police officers are responding to a burglary call at a property management office in central Florida, and they found an unlikely culprit, a raccoon, hiding behind a potted plant. Come on, Nicole. We have audio and video of the actual raccoon. Uh, we'll play it one more time for you. It's, it's kind of hard to hear the thing. I will break you. I will break you, I think he said. That is, a, that's kind of a, that is an angry raccoon. The con- a concerned worker called 911 after finding several ceiling tiles on the floor and papers strewn all about the uh, all Florida property's office in Palm Bay. You want they, a piece of this? You want a, ooh, did he say you want a piece of this? I think so. Holy cow. This raccoon's got a mouth. They captured the crazy little vermin. (laughs) 
Um, and results. Anyway, it's you know what do you do? What do you do? What do you do when you catch a raccoon? They caught it with a catch pole, and then as they were taking it outside to let it go in the wooded area, it said these funny comments. Come at me, bro. Come at me, bro. Like, what do you do with a mouthy raccoon? Do you just let that thing go? No, you don't. Just like with gophers in Caddyshack. (laughs) You blow up the entire golf course. There it goes. This is a great video. This is why we bring you video from the Matt Townsend Show. A lot of radio shows don't do video. There's only one way to get rid of a crazy vermin. Anyway. Hey, as you know, we always like to end the show on on an up note with a hero story. Our hero today is a new bride who's in a wedding gown, ends up giving CPR to a woman on the street. Listen to this. It was almost midnight when newlyweds Andrew Nixon and Julie Strone Nixon left their wedding reception at the Pennsylvania at, at uh, in Pennsylvania, just across the road. They said they were walking down um, and ready to check into a hotel. Where um, when we went through the doors, she said they heard somebody scream, and somebody yelled, "Does anybody know CPR? Is anybody a doctor?" The couple headed toward the bench where they found a woman barely breathing. And a brand new bride knew what she was doing. After all, she was a trauma nurse at the UPMC Presbyterian Hospital. I looked over, and I think my nursing instincts took over, she recalls. And I bolted over to the bench to see if everything was all right. Still in her wedding gown, she began to perform CPR. I started compressions right away. They told me she didn't have a pulse. Gradually, the woman came back from the brink of death. She was mumbling. Finally, she tried to get up, says the nurse bride. And I just kind of like... Held her hand, and I tried to make sure she didn't fall. The woman was doing much better when paramedics arrived to take her to the hospital. This couple um, has has known each other quite a while. We grew up playing tennis together, Julie says. I was six. He was probably eight. And now they're, they're married. And uh, how about that? On their honeymoon night, they ended up saving a life. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool story. So there you got it. Uh, Julie, you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And your husband, thanks for just playing shotgun on that one. (laughs) Luckily, it wasn't a shotgun wedding. That's what heroes are for, folks. We're all here for each other, and we're not going to get through this crazy thing unless we uh, take care of each other. So make it a point to look after those around you. Be a leader in this world. We need more of them. Open your minds up, as we've talked about on the show. Make sure you're not the jerk and you're not the one that's toxic. And uh, again, still love everyone else around you. We'll take, uh, that's it. That's the show. Until tomorrow, we'll be back with more ideas, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Take care, and we'll talk again tomorrow.